right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Before the Tones Drop podcast. Coming uh, in a little hot. We uh, have a very exciting guest today. We have Colonel Morrison, the commander of the 185th, joining us. We're going to talk about a lot of things, uh, switching gears a little bit more of the military side today, but uh, nonetheless, we're going to talk about some exciting topics, leadership, as well as her exciting military career, and then a little bit about being in the 185th in Sioux City and what that does for Sioux City in the state of Iowa. So, Pam, thank you for coming on today. And it's uh, it's a pleasure. I'm excited. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. All this yeah. stuff I'm kind of a little bit of nerd about. I've always loved Army and military aviation. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm very excited to talk about a lot of this stuff today and I have a ton of questions. Uh, but we'll go back before you joined the military, where you grew up and where you're from. Sure. Yep. Uh, originally, I'm from uh, Southern Iowa. I grew up in Osceola, Clark Community High School, small little town south of Des Moines. And uh, my family was from northern Missouri, southern Iowa area, and uh, graduated with about 92, I think, uh, people in my class. But um, yeah, small area, southern Iowa. Perfect. Did you grow up in a military family? I did not. Um, Interestingly, I did not even know that my father was in Vietnam until I came home one day. And I said, I think I figured out how I'm going to pay for college. I'm going to join the Army. And my parents looked at me and said, no, you're not. And uh, I was 16 at the time, and I knew that they weren't going to help me pay for college, and I needed to figure something out. And my sister had already gone to Iowa State, and she had gotten some scholarships, but had called me and said, hey, it's really expensive (laughs) to live. (laughs) And uh, so when I told them that I had been talking to a recruiter, uh, that was the first time my father had ever mentioned to me that he had even served in Vietnam. And so... That was a really interesting uh, time, I guess. Um, You know, he just wasn't, it's not that he hid it. He just didn't ever feel like talking about it. And I definitely don't think he ever believed his youngest daughter would come home and say, hey, guys, I'm going to join the Army so I can help pay for college. (laughs) Yeah, so so what made him come around to the idea and open up to it? Uh, Really, I think part of it was bringing the recruiter and the concept of what I was looking to do. Um, you know, I looked at a couple of different options. Um, in the end, I do believe they came around because my, uh, my first enlistment is, was into the Army National Guard, and I went into the Army Band, um, oh, which mm-hmm. uh, at the time, I, you know, I enlisted during Desert Storm. And so in his mind, I was going to get deployed immediately. Mm-hmm, sure. And um, so what I looked at it, and I said, well, I would really like to serve. And so um, I was big into music. I played saxophone. I played piano. Um, I had done much of that my entire life. And so I kind of compromised, and I said, okay, someday I want to fly airplanes, mm-hmm. but I will enlist, and I'll go into the Army Band. And I like to say that was one of the best decisions I've ever made because it was a very professional organization. It taught me so much that I had never anticipated about being in the military, especially with just their professional conduct and their um, community involvement and everything. It was a really interesting twist. But uh, in the end, I think that is why he agreed to let me go in because I wasn't 18 yet. I wanted to enlist before my senior year so I could start collecting time and collecting Mm -hmm. some funding to start saving for college. And and, uh, so he agreed to it and I enlisted before my senior year so I could start serving during nice. my senior year. So that was school. a six-year contract? It was, and yep. A, and so you, that was enlisted as, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the band? Yes, yep. So my enlist, initial contract was into the band. Um, as soon as I graduated from high school, I had about four days to uh, finish high school and head off to basic training. And then I got back with all of my training 
and I had about two days to be home and see my parents before I packed my car up and left for college. And, you know, it's funny, you talk with people about their high school experience, leaving for college, and uh, mine was just very different, right? I mm -hmm. had a few days to see my friends off, and then I got back and um, packed my car up, and I said, I'll see you guys. And uh, I never moved back home. <laughs> so you went you went basic and then AIT right after that. Yep, so, so with the band, because I was fully qualified, because I brought in so much experience, I didn't actually have to go to an AIT, believe it or not. I came back and... Um, uh, was able to begin uh, integrating into the organization immediately. So um, my basic time was uh, all of my initial experience. Where'd you go to basic? Uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Oh, nice. Yeah. Did you did you have to come an NTO pretty quick too? I believe a lot of the band I, slots are. Yep. So I came in as an E3, okay. and then when I finished basic training, I promoted to E4, um, and I went on to college. And as I was getting ready to go to my NCO development training is when I made the decision that I still really wanted to fly helicopters or airplanes. Yeah, and uh, that's when I opted to switch to ROTC. So I served in the band for about four, four and a half years, and then I ended up switching to ROTC. Okay. And what, so that way I could what college a, was that? Uh, Northern Iowa. Perfect. Yep, Cedar Falls. And then from there you did the officer program, and then you selected aviation as your... Yes. It's your commission. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, yeah. that's very exciting. Was that pretty competitive at the time? It was. Yep. So I I initially started talking with ROTC and said, I, I want to fly helicopters. Um, and I, I was hoping to stay in the guard. But mm -hmm. really, at that point, it was kind of optional. You know, I didn't know. At the, at the time, it was well before September 11th. Yeah. Um, really, the Army was starting to downsize. Most branches were starting to downsize. And so... Um, during my senior year, I kind of got the final option of, hey, you've been selected for aviation, but you can, you know, you can opt for either. So I volunteered to stay in the Guard. And again, just a, a really odd turn of events. And I really had anticipated probably having to serve on active duty, um, mm -hmm. you know, but it was a very different time in the military before September 11th. And, uh, you know, it worked out very well. And I still I was able to maintain my aviation uh, contract and head off to Fort Rucker, Alabama. Yeah. What? What? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. What? What was the draw? Because you keep referring, you know, aviation, but you said, he but helicopters specifically that you, that you so mm -hmm. that you wanted. So what was was I guess what was the draw to to helicopters versus a fixed wing? And is was there like I want to fly helicopters because this is the helicopter that I want to fly? No, you know it's interesting. I I just always wanted to fly. I'd never had any opportunities. Um, and I really think it became helicopters because it was the Army that I enlisted into. So because that's what I knew, because that's what the options were on the Army side, I believe that's why I just, I thought, well, helicopters make sense um, because that's what the Army flies. Sure. Um, I honestly had, I never even knew about the Air National Guard at that point. Um, I'd never met an Air National Guard recruiter. I didn't realize there was even Air National Guard units in the state of Iowa. All I knew was Army because that happened to be the recruiters mm -hmm. that I had spoken with was active duty and Army National Guard recruiters. Um, sure. And so it, everybody always asks me that, like, why helicopters? Honestly, it was aviation that I was truly interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and aviation turned into helicopters because of my Army experiences, it, I guess. But it was like it wasn't growing up or watching TV, but like, I want to fly that. No, yeah. you know, and I, there was definitely some of it. You know, I grew up with watching mash watching mm -hmm, sure. you know watching yeah. the old military and vietnam shows um 
you know, and my father continued to tell me, I think you should go into the Air Force. I think you should go into the Air National Guard or something. But, um, you know, once I really started getting serious about, I really wanted to fly. Um, but I just, I, I went with what I knew, I think. Um, and I was very comfortable with the Army. I really enjoyed my time in the Army. And uh, um, up at UNI, there's only an Army ROTC program. And I didn't want to leave UNI. Um, so I stayed on that route. Was your was your father army or what was he? He was Air Force. Air Force. Yeah, he was a crew chief on one forty ones. Okay. Yeah. Cool. You talked about the you know picking active duty versus guard. If I if I'm not mistaken, today it's a little bit less competitive to fly for the guard side because active duty has so many people. There's a long list of slots, but on the guard, is that was that still kind of the case in the nineties? Um, I think it varies every year. Okay. Every year it kind of varies as to how many accessions they take on active duty, how many accessions they take into the guard. Um, the Army and the Air both kind of alternate, I would say, every year. So ROTC and the Air side now also has the same option. You can go through ROTC and you can commit, you can submit to be able to stay in the Guard versus going active duty. So both have those options, and I would say it varies every year mm-hmm. because each year they discuss accessions on how many go active duty, how many need to stay in the Guard or Reserve. And so I, I don't know that there's a formula for each year on how it works right okay. um i what i have never heard of though is somebody going in and saying oh my gosh i really only wanted to stay in the guard and getting pulled back to duty i do believe if um people i've spoken with anyway who are in the guard now if they are asking to stay in the guard they're usually given that option um and i think that's been a benefit over the last 20 some years of how many people continue to want to serve sure so sure. that might change with time though awesome and then yeah, so then you go down to Fort Rocker, Alabama. You want to talk about going to flight school? Sure. Different, uh, everything's a different experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, it was challenging. You know, uh, flying a helicopter is not normal. Um, definitely not the mm-hmm. <laughs> what you think of when flying a help, uh, an, an airplane. Um, but, you know, I uh, just different versions of leadership, I think, throughout my whole career, right? Um, As you're learning to specifically learn your craft and then specifically learn what that means for you as a leader for yourself, for your crew that might be on the airplane with you or on the helicopter with you, and what that means for um, what you do outside of flying the helicopter. Because obviously, as a leader in the military, as a lieutenant in the military, um, my only job was not just to be a helicopter pilot. Um, much to my chagrin, you know. I <laughs> so you have to be an officer, too. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. If you were the lady, you'd be a warrant officer. Warrant officers, they kind of just, they just, they have the fun stuff. They yeah, Correct. I was just, so that's what I was going to ask. The, they they the, the, you've got a commission as an actual, job. and now, because, was that because you went through the ROTC program, that's got a commission correct. before before flight school? Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. so that instead of becoming a warrant yep. officer. So the Army LA. does keep warrant officers. Um, the Air Force does not have warrant officers, but the Army still does. Um, Traditionally, years ago, I believe it was because it was you weren't required to have a four-year degree to become a pilot, and so they they fast-tracked um, specialty career fields directly into aviation, so that they and and then they've maintained it. Most warrant officers you'll find today have their degrees as well, um, so that's not really a differentiation between a warrant officer and an officer. It's just the training program they go through, mm-hmm. whether you are a lieutenant to become a captain, major, etc., mm-hmm. or a warrant officer. But the warrant officers, absolutely, their their primary skill set is to be the instructors, the evaluators, the the trainers on the helicopters. Um, and I find in the Army there's quite a few that will become an officer, commissioned officer first, and then they'll realize that they really just want to stay flying, and they'll come, sure. they'll 
they'll switch over switch to being on. a warrant officer. Uh, because usually about 03, that's kind of when you start flying a little less yes. in the Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Is it leave command? Yep. So I was um, a troop commander. I was in the cavalry, uh, the 113th Cavalry in Waterloo. And so really after that is when you start to decrease as a commissioned officer. Um, you typically go to some sort of a staff officer position. If you get a command, you probably still fly, but it just depends on the variations of whether or not you continue to fly a lot. Is that, is that air cav at 113? Mm-hmm. Or is it, yeah. it was, yes. Today it's a medevac unit, and they also do lift. But uh, at the time... Um, when I departed from the Army to come over to the Air Guard, uh, it was still the 113th Cavalry. So, so, so what's their, at the time, what was their relation to the 113th Cav and C Troop Lamar's, HHC, yep. Sioux City? I used to come over Alpha here quite Bravo. often. We would, um, we were all in the same organization. So when we would deploy, uh, let's say, up to um, Wisconsin or Mi- Minnesota to mm-hmm. go do training missions, we would all deploy to the field. We would all go out to training events. We would all stay in the field together. So the helicopters would be located somewhere out in the field. We would fly to the ground troops. We would work in conjunction with them to be their eyes and ears of the sky yeah, while they're doing different scouting operations. And we would land and we would do training. We would do plans with them. Mm-hmm. And then we would fly that route for them as, as if they're eyes cool. and ears. And... Um, uh, conduct that training missions with them and then we would meet afterwards to discuss different things we could have done differently and that was in kiowas yep kiowas was the primary um, aircraft that i flew for most of it uh, and then we started the conversion to apaches so i went through apache transition mm-hmm. and got trained in that and we believed we were going to receive the apaches at some point we were actually starting to train down in uh, fort campbell kentucky because during the transition of 0203, um, the Army was really ramping up their Apache transition. And um, unfortunately, there were quite a few aircraft that were lost just to the sand, the, to the weather, sure. to the issues. Um, and so during that transition time was when the Iowa National Guard uh, began looking at conversions to Blackhawks for medevac and lift type missions. Mm-hmm. And so after sending most of my uh, unit. I was in a troop command at the time through Apache transition for the maintenance, for the pilots. Um, we found out that we were actually moving to a lift unit. Um, and so that was a bit of a um, challenge, obviously, yeah. for everybody, I think, at that point, because the Apache transition is an additional 16 weeks. And so as a guard unit, I had to go and ask everybody to go to back to Fort Rucker mm-hmm. for 16 weeks of training. Wow. And then within a year later, we were told uh, you have to go no, back to another right. transition. Well, yeah. you, get a lot, you get a lot of yeah. ratings. That's, uh, a- absolutely. And I think most news. people looked at it and said, hey, this is an awesome opportunity. Sure. We don't usually get this many advanced aircraft in my career. Yeah, so people so. were, some were very upset because they didn't want to go back. Some were thrilled because it just meant they got another aircraft transition. I would imagine there's not many pilots that have flown this many aircraft or get that opportunity. Usually, right. Army usually you end up tracking... You're staying Blackhawk or Chinook. That's correct. So, you know, big, I mean, big difference is aircraft and and mission to Kiowa versus Apache. But, I mean, can you kind of talk, I mean, as far as, I I don't know, if you had to, if you had to pick one between the two, I mean, again, I suppose it depends on the time of day. It's like, you know, I jump in my daughter's Mini Cooper, it's turbocharged, and that's like, you know, they're super fun to just zip around. But if you're, you know, doing other things, you Mm -hmm. want something, you want a pickup truck, you want something, you know, but like, so Apache versus Kiowa, like what, I mean. So I would say 
overall, I mean, a Kiowa, exactly to your point. It's yeah. like driving a convertible. Just like a it, Mini Cooper. Right? It is. It is. Turbocharged. It's, it's turbocharged. Goes really fast. <laughs> yeah. Come on. No, it's. We're it, compared to Patches. I know. Mini Coopers, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the Kiowa was really fun to fly because it's, it's very small. It's very maneuverable. You could fly down in between the trees. We would always take the doors off in the summertime. It really felt like awesome. you were in a convertible. Yeah. Um, we did a lot of missions with, uh, back then, with uh, Counter Drug task force so we would pick up law enforcement and we'd go search fields cool. you know we had we had that primary mission um which was a really amazing mission to do because you could actually fly that single seat you could take the controls out of the mm-hmm. front and we could put a law enforcement officer in the front seat with us so they could um tell us where to go and we could talk um or we could put them in the back seat and they could look out the window which is a little miserable because it gets hot back there mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. when did that conversion take place from going from the cab air cab to medevac yep it was probably around the end of 05 so i left um i got accepted into the air national guard in may of 05 is when i converted over to the air national guard and we were just basically beginning that transition and we were starting to send people off to blackhawk training at that time so I believe I was the last E-Troop commander in the 113th Cav because when the when the Cav disbanded the aviation portion, is they basically took away the Delta, Echo, and Foxtrot troops, which mm-hmm. were the flying troops and the supply troops, and uh, then we converted over to the aviation battalion. Um, and so in that transition, I, I was asked if I would take a Black Hawk transition, but I did not want to commit to another period of time because mm-hmm. I was ready to go to the air. Okay. You know, I had been accepted in, into pilot training for the Air Force. Did you guys use Stetsons and Spurs and all that we stuff? We did, yes. You yes. Still have your Stetson? I do, yes. Yeah, it's in my office, and I keep my captain rank on it because that was what I served as. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I actually have two in my office. I'd received one from an old warrant officer that had become a good friend, and he'd given me a, a very old Stetson, and so I keep both of them in my office. That's really and, cool. Yeah. So. Uh, I do want to go back to pilot school. What was, what was flight school like in terms of, you know, a that lifestyle in just like a, a day, a week, what would that look like? You know, I always like to say it was probably some of the most humbling experiences of my life um, because you you have, I mean, it's not like a college experience in my opinion anyway. It wasn't my college experience anyway. I mean, it's literally you study every night. You have to fully understand the full aircraft. For, for the Army training, you'd sit and you'd understand everything about where a drop of oil goes through the engine, how the hydraulics operate. You have to understand everything about that helicopter. Um, And then you go in and they ask you something different and you have to stand in front of the group and just tell everybody just how much you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's very humbling because what they're trying to do is help you to understand every single aspect of what could go wrong because you might be the only one in that airplane that can fix it at that time. And as an Army helicopter pilot, we don't always have crew chiefs with us. We don't always have maintainers with us. And so we had to fully understand everything about the airplane. And um, it was very humbling, obviously, because you kind of just learn each day and you say, okay, I'm going to do better tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and maybe you get it right or maybe you're the one in front of the formation saying, I don't know that answer. <laughs> and uh, but so I really think it teaches you to look inside of yourself and find something more that you didn't realize you had, because um, being told every day just just how much you have to do to get better mm-hmm. really forces you to look inside and make sure that you're you're doing what you need to do to to understand that next step. Sure. Still, uh, 
still keep in touch with any people you went to flight school with? Yeah, actually, I just got back. Um, my, my kids and my husband and I took a trip to Fort Bragg, which is now Fort Liberty, to go see a very good friend of mine. She's actually Aunt Kirsten to my kids. Um, she just took the brigade for the 82nd Combat Aviation oh, Brigade. Cool. She's the now, now the brigade commander. Nice. And she and I went through pilot training together. Um, she has maintained her, she's on active duty still. And uh, it's amazing, you know. I, she always talks about how amazed she is that I'm still serving and how I'm doing in the Air Force. And I look at her and I just, I say, you, you know, I mean, 82nd Combat Aviation Brigade. That's amazing to me. Really big deal. It was a big deal, That's and it was really amazing to be able to bring my kids down there and let them see this heritage and the history. Yeah. And um, is that 06? Uh, yes, she's also an 06. Awesome. Yep. So yes, so we do keep in touch with a few. Uh, every now and then uh, we'll hear from people, but um, there was myself and uh, uh, Colonel Schwinn and then uh, uh, Melissa Vaughn. We all went through the three females anyway. It was just a very close connection, and they've been just amazing friends for the last couple of decades. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, but I was uh, just the military in the 90s. Was it pretty male-dominated at the time then? Yes. Okay. Yep. I, I went through basic training in 2016 and okay. I, I probably say we were 60 40 male female yeah so like you know, even it's definitely shifted over the last 20 years um i i'm i'm still the i'm the first female to fly in the state of iowa for the army national guard wow. um, bobby dornbus i don't know if you've ever heard her name yeah. she flew up here in sioux city she was the first air national guard um and people used to ask me what how does that feel and i always look around and i said it feels odd because I was not raised to think that I might be the first at anything because how I was raised was honestly how most, I mean, like it, it never occurred to me that I shouldn't or couldn't do something. And sure. it never occurred to me that in the late nineties, I might possibly be the first female at something because it just had never anticipated that there hadn't already been other females doing that. And, and I'm sure that's a product of how my parents raised me, the teachers I had in my school. It just never occurred to me that I might've been the first one to do something like that. That's really cool. Uh, when you were with the CAV, did you did you deploy at all with them? We didn't deploy overseas. Nope, it was all training. Um, we we did believe we were going to get activated, um, so we started the conversion uh, at the end of 01, beginning of 02 to the Apaches. That conversion was going to be about an 18 to 24 month period. By the time we got to the end of that period, yeah, is when we were converting the Blackhawks. I, I didn't think of that. Yeah. So then you at the end of that, then you transferred over to the air. Yes. To the Air National Guard. Mm -hmm. and, and what, what uh, really sparked that change? What recruited you over there? Um, I, I can't always speak to one specific thing. Um, it, but what I will say, it had nothing to do with whether or not I wanted to continue to serve in the Army. I, I loved my time in the Army, and I, I truly did. Um, I, I really just believe I, I had the opportunity. I met some different mentors in the Air National Guard side. Um, that had begun talking to me and saying, you know, you're still pretty young. You can still go back through pilot training. Um, and I thought, you're right, I could go back through pilot training. Because <laughs> it was the full course, right? Because helicopters mm -hmm. are very different than sure. an F-16 or a KC-135. And uh, so when I started looking at it and I just started learning more about what it would mean to transition, um, and so I interviewed and applied and uh, got accepted um, or selected to, to go to Air Force pilot training. Um, you know, it was a number of different things, but in the end, I just, um, I thought, what an amazing opportunity if I could 
apply both and then also serve in both both branches. Where, where were you at in life at the time in terms of marriage or kids? Um, I uh, was just going through a divorce. Okay. Um, I had married right out of college um, and we did not have any kids. Uh, and uh, I was divorced. Um, probably also a bit of an indicator for me as to like, hey, maybe it's time to make some changes in yeah. my life. <laughs> it, it seems that people's guard careers have two phases. There's when they're single or maybe even right. just married. And then when they have kids, it's like mm -hmm. it just everything becomes so much harder. So yeah. going back to flight school yes. wasn't wasn't the biggest inconvenience at the time. Exactly. It probably would have been different, especially for me, had I had kids. Yeah. But mm -hmm. not having uh, young children at home at the time definitely made it easier for me to say, okay, I'm going to focus on my career at this point and um, go out on a leap. You know, I mean, really, I just kind of jumped off a ledge and said, okay, I'm going to do this. This is an amazing opportunity that I wanted to be able to take. How long was flight school through the air, through the air guard? It was another year to get through the initial qualification training. So I went to uh, Oklahoma down to, uh, oh gosh, make me a liar here. I can't think of that. <laughs> going to draw a blank, but it was in Oklahoma. Enid, Oklahoma is where I went down through. Uh, it was a full year of training, though. Um, and then that was before getting my specialty training. So uh, so that was just the basic of, yeah, of yep. uh, fixed, T6 yeah, fixed-wing aviation. Yes, fixed-wing aviation. And then from there, you choose an aircraft. Right, you're right. And so in the Guard, you don't choose. An, so on active duty, they choose what aircraft you're going aircraft. to go to. Yep. But in the Guard, because I knew my unit, I, I tracked that in the first place. And what aircraft so, is that? So initially I tracked to F-16s. Um, I was actually selected to fly F-16s in Des Moines and uh, went all the way through pilot training. And what I what I didn't know is a previous accident um, had actually damaged a disc. And so uh, for me, I had to, um, I went into the F-16 training profile and I ended up actually having more damage than I realized. Um, so it, it burst a disc in my back um, so I had wow. to have a couple of surgeries unfortunately and uh, the Air Force because I've got hardware in my back <laughs> to repair the damages uh, the Air Force said no more ejection seats because you'd probably be paralyzed if you ever ejected oh, so, so thankfully uh, immediately I made a drive up to Sioux City met the commanders and said I'm a qualified pilot I'm just looking for a home mm -hmm. and so thankfully Sioux City accepted me at that time because when it's Sioux City and transfer or go from it was f-22 so they also have this yep F they had f-16s um and then they converted in 0203 time frame okay. so the tanker was really just coming on between 04 and 05 and we were getting mission qualified right as i was coming back from pilot training um thinking that i was going to go into the f-16s and then uh you know things happen for a reason yeah, right absolutely. they absolutely mm -hmm. do and um i you know, obviously it was a difficult time, right? Because I had to have multiple surgeries. I was a little concerned I was not going to fly again at all. And thankfully, I, I got through all that and the Air Force let me back up and flying again. And I was able to get into the tanker, which, uh, you know, I just, I mean, I can look at now and say this obviously is one of the best things, one of the best mistakes <laughs> or accidents or however you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was not what I anticipated, but you just kind of have to always roll with those punches and say, okay. This, this is a this is where my life is going now and it was absolutely an amazing transition to be able to come I, I could imagine unit. anyone at that time going from f-16s to a kc-135 that's a little <laughs> bit of uh, like you said it's like going from a ferrari well, to most of the unit yes. yeah yeah to the exactly <laughs> Cooper, yeah um 
Well, honestly, most of the unit had just made that conversion. There were a lot of F-16 pilots that had just finished flying the F-16s up here because they had just converted to the KC-135. Mm -hmm. So there were quite a few people I flew with that had really made that transition, and they'd actually been flying the F-16. I never got fully qualified in it um, because I was injured before I actually got through the full training program. How, how many hours did you get in the F-16? Oh, I have three flights in it. Okay. <laughs> well, at least you so. got to take a couple <laughs> Yeah, a couple They're basically familiarization yeah. rides. That's yeah, so cool. yeah. I did get through, so the, the training profile on the Air Force is a T-38, so it's it's uh, F-16-ish. It's got two engines in it. It's it's a fighter-type training um, profile, so, or uh, aircraft. Mm-hmm. And so that aircraft was really fun to fly, right? A lot of aerobatics, a lot of mm-hmm. dogfighting, um, and that was most of my experience and it was pretty amazing to be able to do do they do they do, when you go to flight school for for the jets and stuff do they teach dogfighting skills at all and stuff or is that yeah. is that later on yeah yep they do they do um they call it different forms like contact and mm-hmm. but you 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 start with learning the basics of aerobatics and you go out and you do different aerobatics and then as you go into the t-38 you go into more of I mean, they definitely don't call it dogfighting because it's not in the F-16 yet. It's still in the training profile. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's definitely a form of uh, aerobatic flying with another against another airplane. <laughs> so yeah, it te- was pretty technology's amazing. Technology's changed that so much. Yeah. Uh, so the first time you fly an F-16, is, are you on your own? Flying? No. They're, I was in the back seat. It's I was all in a tandem, two, right? It's a two-seater. Yeah, okay, yeah there I, are so two-seater training. That. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, let's keep going. So then you went to... The one, the 132nd, is that the band? No. Nope, the 132nd is the, that was the F-16 unit. That's okay. in Des Moines. Gotcha. Yep, so that's the fighter unit in Des Moines. So then when you came up to Sioux City, did you move up to Sioux City and kind of begin a life here? Nope, I uh, be- began up here as a part-timer. So when I first moved up here, um, I had a full-time job and a house in Des Moines, that or Johnston actually, that I lived in. And so... Uh, I would come up here as a part-timer. I would fly missions. I'd deploy with this unit. Mm-hmm. I'd spend a week or two at a time, just depending on what the mission was or what the training requirements were. And then I would go back home to my house in Johnston. And uh, I was single at the time. Um, I worked uh, in a program for co- called Counter Drug Task Force. Then at that point, we still had the helicopters that were flying, but I worked in the as an exec and then a commander um, in cool. that program. And so I still worked with a lot of undercover and narcotics teams throughout the state. Uh, it was just in a different role at that point. And so I was still doing that in Des Moines while I was flying over here as a part-timer in Sioux City. But you, but you were aviation for your civilian career as well? Nope. I, at that point, I was um, strictly uh, supervisor, leader, okay. um, executive officer. I, we had helicopters that still flew counter-drug missions, mm-hmm. but I did not fly those anymore. I was strictly in the um, leadership role um, and then ultimately finishing as the commander of the task force uh, before taking on a full-time role in the military was that a is that was that a busy unit is that the counter drug task force is that a busy it's pretty, job in iowa i guess it's pretty busy yeah. yeah it's um i really enjoyed that it had a bunch of different aspects to it right some of it we had people that work within different task force throughout the state of iowa we had some up here in sioux city um they either work at fusion centers or they would work in the smaller task forces a lot of counties if you combine together they'll have um, an intel person or to help collect data Um, and so and then we also had educators in the school so we had military people that would go out to the school to do different kind of 
um, counter drug oh, wow. and uh, training events with kids. Um, and then we had an entire schoolhouse of training where we would bring, we would contract people in to do different training events for law enforcement or different teams um, at Camp Dodge. We would provide the training. So we administratively had oversight, but we would bring the specialist in. We would contract okay. in different narcotic teams or different, you know, just it yeah. just depended on what the training events were. I was going to ask, how did how did that coordination go with what primarily Primarily, what law enforcement agencies were you working with during that? All over the state. All so, over. yeah, okay. I would say we had them from Sioux City, way up in northern Iowa, Mason City, all the way east over in Iowa City, on the border over in the Quad Cities. Um, we had some smaller areas in southern Iowa, you know, because uh, some of the agencies around the state, I think, as you probably know, they, they would merge together, sure. right? So you have multiple different agencies that work together to work different sure. narcotics teams part of those task force yeah. yeah so they would be all over the state so any i mean at one time i think we probably had 25 across the whole wow. state that were integrated into different agencies and so very busy um, yeah. especially as a different you know leader and supervisor i would spend a lot of time traveling the state um, to just provide assistance or whatever kind of assistance was needed um, and then most people would come into camp dodge to receive the training so if we would have a class that was being held um, so it's just, it's, it is still there. It's just called the Midwest counter drug training center, okay. um, at Camp Dodge. Yeah. Did and you guys, when you were, um, with that and stuff with the task force, you guys, uh, work much with the 71st, the CST out of Des Moines when they're, we did some, yeah. yep. They would actually come out and do some training with us as well. Um, they, they would not necessarily provide the training. It was just if they needed some training, but mm -hmm. the 71st was, uh, always busy in their own ways. Yep. <laughs> And so, do yeah. they do a lot of clandestine lab stuff? The seventy first, yeah. like if we have one over here, that's who we call. That's yeah. who we call. Yeah. I knew that, but yeah. like, how? But that also becomes a law enforcement issue too. Yeah, for like so, DCI and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's mm -hmm. who we call. But yeah, I don't know if with it with the, your task force with that task force, then if they get lumped in, I don't know. At least so sure. we we make More a phone we, we make a phone call at seventy first, and then right. and they come over. And they yeah, and they kind of tell <laughs> sure. you know, and then we're just we're an asset to assist them. Yeah. Yes, um, like evidence preservation that kind of stuff yeah kind of just securing the scene and stuff before okay. they can you know go downrange and and mm -hmm. uh um get some samples or they might or they might direct us and say you know it, and it all it's and all situational we'll like, direct you yeah <laughs> well yeah like go ahead yeah we're, we're okay July you know if we go downrange and can go ahead and get yeah. the suits downrange <laughs> yeah we go downrange and do initial survey take yeah. some pictures send them send them over there and they might and they might go yeah before we get there you guys can go in and grab something from this and this you know sure. otherwise they might be like secure it wait for us and mm -hmm. kind of thing so. nice yeah, it all depends. It's all situational, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. sure. Yep. Yep. So I'm reading here. It says you have over 3,000 flight hours total. Yes. Uh, qu quick question. Were you able to keep any ratings from your uh, rotary wing days? I, I, I still have all the ratings. You don't lose them, but I'm not current. It's, okay. It's uh -oh. been uh, April of 2005 was the last time I flew a helicopter. What would you have to do to be? Um, I guess I would probably just need to go back through training. I mean, if I were to pick up something like a local um, flying medevac or something, mm -hmm. I would just need a local transition, obviously some currency, because it's been a few years since I flew in a helicopter. Sure. But really, with any airplane, you don't lose it. You just don't have currency. So you okay. have to get kind of a recall into the airplane. So yes. what you're saying, if like if the zombies were coming and there happened to be a helicopter I could probably you could get in and get it out. I could probably get us out of right here. On, yeah. Right <laughs> on. Started. All right. That's well, like, as I tell anybody, like, you know, train your, always teach your kids, like, you know, teach them to drive a stick shift. 
right? Like, you know, because worst case, One's like whether coming back. Yeah. Well, just like because how many how many kids don't know how to drive a stick shift? But like, you know, if don't you know had how to like drive anymore, right? drive that's, at all. That's what like. <laughs> but if there was a pickup truck, like a regular cab pickup or maybe like a, you know, it's just sitting there. And that was like your only option is a stick shift and the zombies are coming. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know how to drive it. I'm stuck. Right. And the zombies get you. Learn how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> You know, it's like, or, or, you know, meet somebody that knows how to fly a helicopter. Worst case scenario. Like, we can probably get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you brought up the zombie thing. How many UFOs have you seen while flying? (laughs) That's what I'm about. (laughs) Yeah. Is that, would that be the next transition? Like, can you transition to Space Force? There we go. That would be interesting. Yeah. And I I don't know know if I'm enough of an engineer. And like spaceships, you could add that. Like, because your flight, you know, when you look at the airframes and everything that you've flown, I mean, it is like, it's impressive the yeah. variety of stuff that whether and even even not necessarily like tons of flight hours, but even up to you know F sixteens or to just even have you know a little bit of time in them. But just it's very extensive the amount of aircraft that you flown or I'm, been. I'm you really know, gone good at a lot of things, on. but not really great at anything. <laughs> <Anyone? laughs> but yeah, I think you could add you know rocket okay. rocket ships. Rocket ships, that yeah. would be kind of neat. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but 900-hour flight hours in support of uh, combat missions, Enduring Freedom, uh, Iraqi Freedom, Freedom yes. Sentinel, and Inherent Resolve. Can we talk about your deployments? Sure. How, how many times have you been deployed? Oh, goodness. Overseas? More times Probably. than you've eaten beans, Ben. Yeah. So, you know, the, um, the interesting thing about the tanker deployments and the tanker missions, um, they're not the same as what an Army deployment is, right? So I, although I never went overseas in a helicopter, the tanker missions – we might go for 30 days. We might go for 60. We might go for 90. We rarely go for much longer than that okay. because it's very hard on these airplanes. The airplanes that I fly now, the KC-135s, it's better to rotate them through. And realistically, if we're going somewhere, we might be bringing teams into a certain area um, and then bringing them back out, right? So maybe we're only gone for 14 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we might be gone because we're supporting a specific area for perhaps 90 days or however long that happens to be. And so I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, okay. I, and not because I can't, but because I just, I, I don't know how many times I've crossed over the pond to go to different areas. Um, and some of that time is also in the MQ-9, because as you probably saw in my bio, the I also Reapers. flew the, the Reaper. Yeah. Um, and Sweet. so some of that time was sitting in Des Moines flying sure. combat missions across the world. That's really um, cool. Yeah. How long would you say you spent overseas? Um, well, according to my reduced retirement, I'm probably two and a half years, three years, because oh. So the military right now, for every deployment you do, for every deployed day that you spend overseas, you can reduce your retirement. It's something that the military came up with in order to help Guard and Reserve members be able to achieve their paycheck a little earlier Mm -hmm. if they spend so much time. So right now I'm at close to three years, which tells me I've probably spent at least three years or more at any given time. But, But I've never spent more than, like, I would say 90 days is my longest one, which which is important for me to say because when people go overseas for 12 months straight or 15 months straight you know i have i have friends that were gone for 16 months straight Mm -hmm. that that is that is a commitment that i can't even begin to speak to because while while deployments for me you know maybe maybe it's every two months i'm going somewhere maybe and i i don't do this anymore because i'm busy but (laughs) (laughs) um you know i it's different when you're coming back 
right? It's for somebody, especially in the Army, the Marines, the, the folks that go over for six months, nine months, 12 months, that is a very different commitment than what I can ever even speak to. And so, yes, I've spent a lot of time overseas, but it's just different, right? Mm-hmm. When I'm flying sure. an airplane in and I'm flying it back out, I mean, I, I, I think about, you know, uh, Baker over there, and I just think I know he's been on some long deployments. That is a different commitment than what I have ever had to experience. Um, and all of this time was before I had kids. I mean, I do have kids, but they're very young still mm-hmm. because sure. I waited very late in my life to have them. Okay. And uh, so and, well, and, and, well, it's like the, wor- the world here doesn't stop. Right. Right. You yeah. know, like everything here keeps functioning where, you know, you go on the, de- the deployment and mm-hmm. that's your world now. But, that's the mission. That's but yeah, the, but yeah, everything here. So, on, yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, it, it does it make it be. easier. I mean, you get up, you eat, you maybe go to the you gym. You know your routine. Yeah. <laughs> you got a routine. You got the same routine it's every day. Yeah. But I think like what you said life. with coming yes. back, though, that Simple. the world here didn't yeah. stop yes. changing or moving or anything, even though your world changed. Yeah. Here Life here stop. continues yeah. just like it was. Yep. So I, I, I could see that the mindset coming back that would that would be a kind yeah. of a tough thing. Yeah. 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 When you're yeah, yeah when you're young single that's the best time to deploy mm-hmm. and you just like you said you wake up you go to the gym yeah you do your job you eat jail hall is usually pretty decent if you're lucky yeah and no it it really is an easy it's easy money and you make some friends along. What the way. was your longest deployment? We were. We were nine months in country, and yeah. then we had nine months. That's yeah. A so we were, we were in, That's a we were long in time. East Africa for nine months, uh, different, couple different locations along the way, but <clears throat> two months of pre-mob, and then probably three weeks on the back end. The, yeah. whole, the whole thing was about eleven months, and it was all set. And you were army, right? army guard. Yeah. Yep, yeah, with the mm-hmm. cab here in okay. Sioux City. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, I was twenty. 23 I think I turned 23 on deployment single yeah. it was came back good came but back your head because uh, you came had back to, a grown-up by the way <laughs> yeah, I will say yeah you were, you were just yeah. it was just after probation yeah I, I yeah. was probably probation maybe another year after that that I deployed yeah okay but that's a long period of time yeah it right? is life and continues back here it was a completely different experience for me versus the people that had two kids at home and a yes. wife that yeah. uh I, I'm I'm thankful I got to do it when I got to do it, and then yeah. we'll see what happens the rest of my career. Right. Uh, any missions overseas that stand out though that you know that were you know that was some, some I mean, really really fun flying some really purposeful yeah. missions. I mean the 185th I feel like doesn't get enough credit for what they actually do Tons and, of and what they've yeah. supported over the last 20 yes. 25 years. You're right. Um, we've got some really amazing. We've had some really amazing missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I I think the ones that stand out to me. I personally really like the South America missions. Um, it's not a combat zone, but it's still very much, um, they're valuable, right? They're value added. Um, and we're typically supporting units that are uh, doing, I mean, again, I go back to the counter drug task force type of a mission. Um, I, I, have, I have thoroughly enjoyed every single mission I've done in CENTCOM, right? And so I would say, the, the thing I love the most is trying to understand the area in which you are. And, and obviously, tankers are large, and we don't get to go to small landing zones, right? We're not a C-130. We've got to go to larger yeah. built-up areas. But I would say just what I've really enjoyed is just getting to know different cultures around the world. Um, you know, Kyrgyzstan is a beautiful and amazing place, right? I had an opportunity to go out and just see some of the mountains one time, and I was like, this is one of the most beautiful places in the world I've ever seen. You know, 
the the mountains in Afghanistan, I I would love to take my family on a hiking trip there, right? Mm. Not not going to. Yeah. Not, I'm not going to. <laughs> not right, but, but. Um, people do apparently, and yeah. they you know have found themselves. We see in them trouble. on the news. And we stuff. see them on the yeah. news sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, there's just there's so many amusing or uh, amazing places, and and just the different cultures, the different societies, um, you know, different people you meet. It's just. Uh, you know, I think they all stand out because they're all just, I mean, it is it is not us. And it's so amazing to see other people um, in other societies and just understand. Gives you perspective on how little we think our world is, but then yes. how big it is, right? Yeah, cool. exactly. That's awesome. Uh, can you talk about the 185th and just their footprint in the global war on terrorism last I'd say 20, 25 years. Yeah. I love talking about done. the 185th. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, <laughs> I, I, talk, I, I talk it assume up. you're a fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's not just our airplanes, right? We have um, every single mission you could possibly think of. We have people deploying at different times. And when I think about our footprint and I think about people I run into and they're like, oh, yeah, I was deployed with some of your guys here and here, you know, because when we send people overseas, the last time, for instance, we sent people overseas, we might have been um, somewhere around 200 or so, but we were in 30 different locations, So, like, our people are spread thin. It's not like I send 200 people all together in Eastern Africa, Mm -hmm. right? I might send 10 there. I might send five there, you know. And and the Air Force concept of deployment is just a little bit different than how the Army goes, right? Because we'll we'll fall in on other units, which unfortunately means sometimes we've got young airmen going off by themselves. And and that's not the intent, typically. The intent is that you want to send people, at least with a group, with a senior NCO or somebody, at least, that has been experienced before, because to me, when I look at that, I just no different than sending my kid off to, you know, something by himself. I'm just like, oh, gosh, I'm sending you yeah. halfway around the world. And, you know, you're a 20-year-old young airman completely by themselves. Um, and so, I mean, our footprint is just – and it's very hard to even keep up with sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, we have eight aircraft um, at any given time. And every week I get an update of different locations that we're at and different things that we're out doing. And – you know, and I know what that means is those are my pilots, my booms, my maintainers. These are people that are out on the road missing their families, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe it's just two weeks, maybe it's a month, you know, it just depends. But at any given time, I, I would say we are all over the world. And that's the most amazing piece to me because I just, um, when I talk to people about being in the guard and not being full time, um, but then I discuss just all the things that we do, it's, it's just so amazing to me because they're like, well, I, I just thought you were in, you know, on the weekends and yeah, people no. fly. And no, <laughs> we're, we, we go out and we do things at any given day, you know, to multiple locations. And um, that's that's the beauty, I think, of, you know, we don't necessarily need to advertise it, but we have some really amazing people that um, are very committed to being able to continue to do that. Well, so. in my mind, the activeness speaks to how – you know, the 185th operates and its reputation. It has to, you know, get widespread with how many deployments and how active they are, right? I yeah. Mean, it's cool to hear them. Then it's right here. Yeah, how it many, is. How many units are have the same mission or similar to, to the 185th so in there, the country? Yep, there are uh, 16 other what I consider canker units. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're all at a very similar level, right? We the the tanker mission the tanker requirement and then the support elements that go along with that is a pretty high need um and so i'm sure it varies with every you know there are times when 
we uh, slow down some of our operations, especially if we've got inspections or exercises. Um, and you also have to find a balance because you have some that are always wanting to go out and do something and they're oh, always looking absolutely. for something. But at the same time, we have others that are just like, I just, I just need to be home for a little while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to find that balance because there is always going to be a need. And that is what I've learned over the years is we could say yes to everything and still have more requests that are coming in. Uh-huh. Right. And so we have to find a balance so that we're not pushing people out the door because they're just like, listen, I can't handle both, right? Because our our folks are all still full-time. Some, I mean, some of them are full-time. Yeah. Some of mm-hmm. them, are, you know, whether they're guard bums that they like to call themselves, yeah. which they really just work for us. And then whenever they don't want to work, they just don't come in because they're they only get paid if they're there. And then we have the assortment of full-timers, you know. So we have to find that balance because there is definitely enough of a need around the entire world and or here in the United States that we could be busy all the time. And so, you know, as a leader, I have to say, let's find this balance Mm because some of them are requirements, right? Sometimes we get requirements and they're like, nope, you have to be here. Those are different than the other opportunities that because we've got great Americans that just want to do great things. Mm -hmm. You you said 16 tanker units. Yes. And is that Mm -hmm. the Air Force as big picture? That's guard. That's okay. guard only. Yep. So there's active duty as well. And I, I have a hard time even comparing us to the active duty because, um, you know, I don't really know what they're, uh, I know that they're busy. I don't mm-hmm. know what they're, um, what I know is the guard mission and, and how we deploy and how we support missions. As I was, was going to ask, I was hoping you could talk about the level of percentage that the Guard and Reserve covers for military missions, big picture, that I don't, I don't think people realize. Yeah, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have that percentage, but I, I feel like it's pretty high. You know, I, I can't tell you that answer. And I don't even, I mean, I'm not certain what that is, but I do know between the tanker mission um, and then the support mission that the rest of our folks all do, um, I know it's a fairly high, we're much more integrated on getting to active duty and supporting it one by one, maybe a group of 10, maybe a group Mm -hmm. of 200 whatever that is um it's we're definitely the air force reaches in directly because we work directly for the cocom right so in the air air national guard i work for the tag but then we also work for director of mobility forces right amc mm-hmm. and in the army guard you work for the tag and it's only if you're activated onto an active component then you deploy as an entire unit and that's that's the difference as to how they, they reach into the air guard consistently because what they need is our iron, right? They need our iron, but then they also gain access to all the support elements that go along with the iron that they need. Gotcha. Well, so what would you say the overall goal of the 185th is? What is the primary mission? Um, our primary mission is to, to give fuel, right? Okay. We are an air refueling mission. So we travel the world, and our primary mission is always to give refueling missions to bombers, fighters, larger aircraft, whatever that mission might be. So that is what we do on a day-to-day basis. And if you look at our wartime mission or anything, all of our support elements are to make sure that we provide that refueling mission support. Because we also have room for about 40-ish people or cargo, we also do cargo and, and people mission as well. We move soldiers, we move airmen, we pick up Marines, we do any kind of a branch. And we'll move up to, you know, if you get Army folks on there with all of their battle rattle and everything mm-hmm. else, 40 is pushing it. You know, you're yeah. probably looking a little less than that. 
Um, so it's not so much the weight restriction. We can carry as much fuel as we need. It's just the space inside of the airplane that's required. So um, while we primarily do the air refueling, a lot of times we'll take off with just five of us, right? We maybe have a couple of crew chiefs, we've got a boom operator and a couple pilots. Um, at other times we might take off to go haul 40 people down to Guam or mm -hmm. over to Japan or wherever they happen to be going for yeah. training or, or for yeah. combat-related missions. So in support of that mission, what, are, what departments down in the 185th support that overall group? Yeah, sure. You know, I like to call um, the base is kind of like a little city, right? I mean, it really yeah. is because we've we've got our operators, we've got our people in the airplane unit, I guess, if you will. I'm trying to um, simplify it. Mm -hmm. And then we have our entire main maintainers, right? We have an entire maintenance group um, that take care of our airplanes. These airplanes are old. They need a lot of work. And we have some really professional, amazing people that keep these airplanes running. Um, and then separate from that, we have an entire medical group. So I have an entire team of doctors and um, optometrists and nurses and doing, people doing different uh, support like that. They're not all full time. Most of them are out here in the community. And so right now I've got two optometrists that are here in town, but they're, um, they're in the Pacific and they're providing support to locals in that community they're providing eye care, you oh. know, which is just one of the mm -hmm. amazing things that we can do. And so they're, they're, they don't necessarily shut their practices down, but they, they have to have other people cover for them because they're down providing this assistance that the military is able to provide. Um, and then the other big core piece is what I call the support element, right? It's the mission support. It's, it's our firefighters, right? We, mm -hmm. we provide all the firefighting support on, uh, at the airport, as, as you probably know. Um, and then it's our security forces. So again, whether we're providing security on our base or whether it's a deployment, we've got our law enforcement. Um, and then we have an entire logistics squadron, which is all of our, you know, all of the logistics, right? It's all of our pieces and parts that come and go, beans and bullets and everything else that comes and goes. And um, then we've got our own separate communication squadron, which is basically all of our Com guys, right? It's all of our cyber guys. It's all of our folks that truly understand the computers and understand all of that. Um, and we've got our own contracting specialty core. So these are contracting specialists that are able to do government and military contracts so we can process things. You know, we've got our own finance division. We've got an entire group of some that are full time, some that are part time. We've got our own little bank, kind of, I guess, if you will. And then we've got an entire engineering division, which, I mean, not division, right? That's not the right word to use, but it's a squadron. Sure. Um, but they take care of our pavement. They take care of our water. They take, I mean, they take care of everything, you know, for us. And so any support element that you can think about in a community um, or in a city is what we have around base on all of it, right? We have the administrative, the human resources. We've got our own human resources and services uh, we've got cooks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and they're really good. We've got great cooks that, that take care of uh, all the food for us. So just about every AFSE, um, so we MOS is in the Army, AFSE is in the Air Force. I mean, we've got multiple different specialties that all just do the, the job that you would normally think of in a community to keep things running, you know. I got, cool. I got, it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. No, I got one more question before sure. we take a little break, and that is just about the KC-135. You said it's an older aircraft. Can I just give a little history of the KC-135 and some of the capabilities and yeah. what it can do and what it yeah. does? 
Yep. So um, I think, and I'll probably be wrong, I should have come prepared. I think our oldest airplane right now is a 1961 model. Wow. So is that K-35? Is that a... Uh, was that mission specific? It was designed to be a refueler, or it is was. that a, or is that a um, converted resurface? You know, yep. yeah. Like so a, ours, uh, the KC one thirty five. So K is for refueling, and C is for cargo. So okay. it was made to be a primary refueling Refueler. and cargo airplane. Okay. Yep. And so when it was made back in the late fifties, you know, they were. We used to have models as old as nineteen fifty seven, and they're just slowly getting rid of them. Um, it's the airframe that is that old. Our engines are new, right? We've got yep. we've got some airplanes out there with engines that have less than hundred hours on them, right? Wow. I mean, they're brand new engines, mm -hmm. and so it's not the engines you worry about. It's it's the structure that mm -hmm. you worry about, right? And it's it's the parts inside because we keep on adding all of this really great technology into this airplane that's from 1960, and the intermixing of old with the new is what can sometimes cause problems. But what I would say is Boeing made a really amazing airplane, right? That's, they made an amazing yeah. airplane that has withstill with, you know, withheld the stand. To not have to time. update it. I mean, just yeah. other than, like you said, the technology mm -hmm. and the right. engines and stuff, but what we're still the, using those yes. planes that were initially made and yeah. like, why change it if it's yeah. not broken? Are they producing new ones? They are not, no. no. Um, so what we've, uh, the Air Force has done is contracted for a new type of an airplane for a new refueling mission. Mm -hmm. um, they've been in the per in the process of, of buying some. They're called, it's called a KC-46. Um, they have not decided if they're going to do the next buy on them. There's still discussion at the big Air Force level of, are we going to go with more KC-46s? A lot of people say, hey, let's look at this old technology and make a new airplane with the new technology, perhaps, mm -hmm. because obviously this airplane has been the workhorse that the Air Force has needed for mm -hmm. decades. Yeah. And right now, the airframe itself is still going to be good, they're saying, for just going to speculate probably for 40 or 40 or 50 more years. Wow. So it's very possible that some of these airframes could live to be 100 years old That's because so cool. of the airframe of it itself. Um, and so, yes, they were absolutely made to be one of the original refueling airplanes. There were others, right? Um, you know, the 141, I think that might have done refueling or that might have been all cargo. I don't really remember. But but there were other refueling airplanes, but um, this one has was still... So has made it through time. How about the 135? So let's, so let's break it down to like really just like layman's, like for the, the general person that doesn't know anything sure. about that aircraft. Like where's the where's the fuel stored on it? Yeah, yeah. So it's a Boeing 707, which if you go to Sioux City here, sometimes you might see a Boeing 727, which is kind of the same, a similar version. I think most have gotten rid of the 717. Um, but it's basically, um, so ours have four engines on it. When you see the civilian models, you usually just see two engines on it. There were four put on it just for more um, strength over the years to be able to carry more fuel. Because what we do is we carry our fuel in the body of it and in the wings and in the tail. We carry it everywhere we can. <laughs> so we could take off with very little fuel, and the airplane is going to be very light, especially if we have cargo that we're putting in the airplane. Um, or we can fill it up completely. And so... For instance, if you've ever flown on one or if you ever have the chance, your feet will be very cold if you're on an airplane for very long because the fuel gets fuel. very cold yep. <laughs> and it's in the body of it. So we have tanks in the main body and then each of the wings actually holds fuel all the way out to the fuel tips. So there's fuel and there's different bladders and what we're able to do is move that around. You can't always move it all back 
but you can maneuver it around. And you, when we are giving gas, we can maneuver it so that way when we're giving gas to a receiver, let's say it's an F-16 or um, you know an A-10 or whatever this airplane is, we can move gas to give it to them, but that way we can always make sure we save the gas that we need. Mm -hmm. So when we're doing mission planning and we're making sure we have what we need, first we start with how much do we need, right? Mm -hmm. How much do we need to know that we're going to stay in this area, we're going to fly here, we're going to fly back, or whatever that is. And then we say how much are we going to need to give to the receiver? And, and we don't ever want to carry much more than we need. Right, because it's very hard on the structure. And when, when we talk about the fact that we're flying these airplanes potentially for another 40 or 50 more years, mm -hmm. we don't want the fuel on that airplane unless we need it. So ideally, you only put as much as you need. So we, we keep a certain amount on at all times. It's really, you know, some of it is good for the airplane to have some. But in other times, you know, we might have to weigh it down. Um, but you don't want to keep that on there for very long because um, it's no different than why we have to give fuel in the first place. If it's, a, if it's an F-16 that's completely loaded down, they can't take off with enough fuel. They have to take off. They can receive more fuel because once they're yeah. flying, once they're, they're flying, able to. Right. Yeah, but if they have too many weapons on or if a sure. bomber has too many um, you know, weapons on board, they're going to have to take off and then get the fuel mm. um, to receive it. So how many gallons or, or is it done in gallons or pounds? Like how much it's fuel do pounds. you – can you can, – I mean, I guess on average, I suppose, how much do you normally take off with and, and what's your max capacity, I right. guess, for taking yeah, off Yeah, so uh, over 300,000 pounds is what we can take off with, right? That's what – it's 320 – Is that um, fuel and aircraft? Yes. Okay. Yep, it's all together. So it's kind of looked at in total weight. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say around here, we usually take off, like, call it 150, 180. You know, I mean, at any given time, you'll have enough to go out and do a few patterns. Maybe we fly down to Kansas City. We go to some of the ranges. Um, so that way, it's a comfortable weight for the airplane to be able to, with, you know, to be fine with. Mm -hmm. um, we typically don't take off with that max amount of – so it all depends on – the winds it depends on the weather it right. depends on the altitude it depends on all the different factors it depends on the length of the runway mm -hmm. so here in sioux city um the big push that we've been working on is we are in need of a new runway um, and we've been in need of a new runway for 20 some years now because when we converted from f-16s to kc-135s we still have the old runway that we started with and so they've done some improvements they've done some repairs mm -hmm. but the little, runway little is more weight little yeah, we're saying, a little heavier heavier, heavier right? aircraft landing yeah on it. an yeah. average of 16 you're going to talk about is you know let's talk 30 to forty thousand pounds mm -hmm. right that's what an f-16 on average is going to weigh a tanker at any given time is going to be 150 180 200 right you know we so we have to be very cautious here so for 20 years we have taken off and gone to other locations sometimes to get extra fuel just okay, because just we to want to be cautious with our runway. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's been our big push recently is just, hey, this this should have been done 20 years ago, but it wasn't, right? Mm -hmm. I get it. It's we've we've done our due diligence, I believe, with the funding that we had available back in the at the time. Late, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all know how the federal budget works. Yep. It's not like, you know, and and honestly the runway was okay. Mm -hmm. But now we're looking at it and saying we've got to get this fixed. We yeah. also need the extensions on it because we need to have more space available on our runway. Um, and we need to be able to take off with the weight that we should be able to take off with. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can take off from here and we can fly a good distance, but it's just we have to be very cautious. We we work on a waiver at all times because 
we always are too heavy really yeah. for this runway. For this runway. What um I guess because you you do refuel your your plane from the fuel that you carry on. So what's I guess the longest sustained flight that you could do after you take off from here? How long could you stay in the air at one given time? Without refueling? Without re- yeah, without refueling the refueler. <laughs> yeah, with just right. with the fuel that you carry on board and stuff. If you were just going to put that plane in the air, how long could it fly for? Um, Again, it, it all depends, right? Mm-hmm. You get up to 40,000 feet in the air and you got a huge headwind, you're going to hit some problems as you're crossing the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the longest I've done out of here is either... So um, if we're going to Guam, we'll usually stop in Hawaii, for instance, um, because why not? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> but like it's a also a great stop. Yeah, yeah, it's a great stopover part. But you know, from here to Hawaii, let's let's say if it's good winds, seven and a half, eight hours. Mm-hmm. You know, very easily to get there. Oh. We could, but why? I mean, Guam is truly twice the amount of time yeah. to get on down there. But you could make it. Potentially. <laughs> yeah. That's why Phil's not a pilot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm you know, just curious. And, you know, like you're carrying gas on the plane. Right. Like, you know, how I'm far kidding. can it go? Yeah. Well, well and like when we go east, question. you know, yeah. we can go from here straight into Germany. We can go okay. straight mm-hmm. into Great Britain yeah. um, easily and have plenty of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, we could go further. It's typically more about how many air crew do you need to have on board? What are the winds going to look like? What are yep. the weather? You know, if you're crossing over the ocean either direction, if there's potential winds or storms, yeah. you really have to reroute that and reroute. plan a different. So I hate to say it always depends, but it does always okay. depend. I mean, mm. we, but from, from out, out of Sioux City here, um, I would not feel comfortable weighing the airplane down with the max wave. Right. Well, we couldn't really because yeah. our runway is just not out. sustainable for what we need it to be. What's sure. the largest aircraft you've ever had to refuel for like you've ever had you know like are we talking like c5s or c7s and stuff yeah c5s are probably the hardest one in my opinion to refuel because the bow wave it brings up is just so massive Mm -hmm. yeah um f16s you can barely fill right a10s you can barely you don't even hardly know they're back there because they're just so maneuverable Mm -hmm. um bombers are interesting right just depends on the way that the bow wave comes in um and the way that you know you can tell if they're coming in too fast because the airplane starts to um have some issues with maintaining a little turbulence (laughs) Mm -hmm. um you know so the c5 is the biggest one i've ever refueled um, I haven't had the opportunity for the new fighters like the um, the F-22. I haven't refueled the F-22, but I've been told you can feel them a little bit more because they are larger. Mm-hmm. Um, but bombers, you can definitely feel. Yeah. Uh, you know, those are fairly large. But, um, yeah, the largest I've ever uh, done is the C-5. Cool. C-5. Mm-hmm. Any rotary wing assets? No, we uh, we don't get slow enough for a rotary wing. Okay. Yeah, so we can do A-10s, and if they're heavily loaded, we really have to get slow and get creative sure. on making sure we can refuel them. Uh, same with some C-130s. C-130s are typically fairly slow, especially if they either have a lot of cargo or if they have the weapons on board. Um, they're, they're, they will fall off often, and you have to get creative with um, <laughs> some of the procedures just to make sure they can get the gas because they get so heavy. So. Sure. Yeah. When you guys when you guys go for a flight then with with your crew do you have is it the same crew every time or do you just like well let's get yeah. take you 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 and you go so or from it here same? it's always a different one right so typically from here it's different crews because that way we all get used to flying with one another and um, some are instructors some are evaluators um, mm-hmm. some are very young. Um, <clears throat> when you deploy overseas, typically you're going to deploy with a certain crew because sure. that way you stay on that schedule. So a lot of times um, when I would go, if you deploy with a certain crew, 
there might be some extras that are available to jumping in and out because they're doing staff or something. But for the most part, you're always with that primary crew every day. Um, and that's important because especially when you're in an overseas deployment situation, maybe you have the late night shift, right? So you're taking off around midnight every night. Maybe you have the early morning shift, and so you don't want to alternate between crews, especially if you're only there for 45 or 60 or 90 days. That way you're always on the same cycle with that crew. Yeah. So Pilots got to get their sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got to get some sleep. <laughs> I'm always jealous. It's the only job they make sure they get their sleep. That's right. Well, you want me to have sleep if Absolutely. you want to take off the land. I want my pilot well rested. Uh-huh. That's fine. So if you're doing like a 16-hour flight, you know, going to the east, you know, going to Kosovo or Germany, mm. is there work rest cycles in the pilots? There are. Yep, okay. yep. So we can fly with augmented crews. Uh, we've got bunks in the back. Um, traditionally, the, the maintainers like to use them, and it's you know they use them often because that way they'll – They'll be rested and ready when we land because then they have to do the maintenance on the airplane. Um, but yes, absolutely. I've yeah. I've been on flights before where I would go back and you know take a nap and you kind of wake up and you're like, where am I? What am I doing? Yeah. You know, because someone's yeah. like, hey, it's your turn. You know, yeah. you kind of got to yeah. wipe the sleep out of your eyes yeah. and yeah. go crawl up front. A little bit different than waking up to get to go down to the you know wherever some nursing home or warming shelter. Or something. I was just like, going to say, like, you know, it's yeah, kind it's of a little bit to the different. fire department because right. our truck drivers and engineers, right, Ryan? We need our sleep. You do. That's why yeah. we, we that's recliner why, time that's is why key. We sleep it so is key much. for us, you it know. Is. And that's why, like the the officers and stuff are always still up doing things. Yeah. Just like the pilots are always working. Yeah, just, like the other guys are sleeping. We got to get you there. You know? Yeah, it's important. Yeah. Awesome. We'll take a quick break. Yeah. We'll have one, get a refill. Use the bathroom if they need to, and then we'll come back and finish. Okay. okay. Sounds good. Thank Thanks. you. All right. So we were kind of talking about the future of the 185th. Uh, any new missions on the horizon for the 185th? That's coming up or where, where do you see the next you know three to five years at least you're in your time as command yes absolutely um so i right now my my priority is dealing with the runway and the ramp right because when i look out to the future whether it's 10 years 20 years 30 years i want to make sure that the base and the infrastructure is prepared to take on whatever that mission is and right now obviously my concern is is that we have a runway that really has been in need of repair for quite some time and uh, so whatever that mission might be, right, um, I, I do believe we have a future in the Air Force, right? There's no doubt in my mind that the refueling mission, the pilots, the support elements that we have are absolutely uh, sustainable to the future for the Air Force mission. Um, right now, uh, you know, we have a KC-135, but as I mentioned earlier, the KC-46 is coming online. And the Air Force is still trying to determine how many more of these are they getting? Are we going to go for a different type of a refueling platform? And so there are some additional opportunities coming for a KC-46. How they'll make that final decision, I'm really not sure. Um, I, I can say all day long, hey, let's push you. Because I look at my, my team, right? The team we physically have in Sioux City, and we are, our strength is great, right? Our capabilities are great. There's no doubt no one could compete with where at least I believe that my team is capable of going. And so in my mind, we absolutely should be eligible for this next airplane. What I don't know is whether or not they're going to look at the infrastructure, right? Because let's just be honest, a runway and a ramp is not cheap, right? Every aircraft or every unit is going to have to have a new hangar, right? We've got a really great big hangar, but it's old 
and the Air Force has deemed that our hangar is in need of a new one, right? And that's that's pretty that's pretty standard for the Air Force, right? You you keep them longer than you probably should, um, and we make them work because they're very expensive to rebuild. Um, everybody is going to have the same cost for a hangar to rebuild a new hangar, get it a little bit bigger. The new airplane is a little bit bigger. But it's, it's the runway and the ramp that we've decided we just have to continue to stay focused on. So if the Air Force comes down and says, hey, we're going to give you the new airplanes, we're going to say, great, we're going to transition to them, and it'll be just fine because we're going to continue doing what we have to do. But when I consider what the priority has to be, we've got to get this ramp and runway fixed because that is what brings us to the next 30 years, the next 40 years, to make sure that we're still sustainable in this community and for the Air Force's future mission. So there is potential for other aircraft, but honestly, my priority is not even trying to worry about the new aircraft. My priority is making sure that we are capable here to go for the next 30 to 40 years. How would that change things for the civilian airport down there in terms of benefiting uh, Sioux City for yeah. travel options? Yeah, great, great benefits. I mean, we've been, we work with the airport all the time. I, we have a really terrific um, relationship with the community, with the leadership in the community, and then also with the airport. And obviously, there's a lot of really amazing things going on at the airport down there because we've got a couple of civilian aviation agencies. We've got Morningside coming online to start their program. Um, we've got the maintenance program starting. And so it's only going to help benefit it. And a larger runway and potential area for parking could potentially down the line also add benefit to civilian agencies, right? Maybe what whether it's an Amazon, whether it's a FedEx, I have no... I have no idea. Sure. All I look at it and say is, if we can prepare ourselves to what we need, I think it will only help benefit the community in Sioux City as well, because yeah. a larger runway is usually more beneficial. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Is there any aircraft civilian side that isn't coming to Sioux City right now because of the runway? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, sure. especially the larger distribution type aircraft. Sure. You know, They're going to want the 10,000 feet. They're going to want the heavier runway like we need. If you're going to be bringing <clears throat> Amazon or FedEx or larger airplanes in and out of here, um, for instance, uh, last fall I was actually coming back on a landing, and they had just landed, and I can't tell you which airplane it was. I'm not sure, but it was. They couldn't park it over at their ramp. Actually, they had to stay on the taxiway, so we had to turn around on the runway because they had nowhere to go because they were bringing a team of uh, basketball players, and I think to one of the universities and the airplane was too big so they had to keep it parked on the ramp so for us to get around it we had to um you know and just imagine if you had that parking pad there and just sure. imagine if the runway would have been bigger um you know someone like amazon or fedex might look at a distribution center from here i mean those that's wow. just speculation from my part i i don't know yeah so, so there's no proven or researched if this happened and Amazon would, they would want right. to or any interest. It's just all giving them the options right. and opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. All I can look at is what I know that we need and what we need is a uh, longer runway and heavier runway for capability. And I, I do believe it would help benefit the civilian market awesome. as well, potentially. So Perfect. Uh, going back to you know some of the air, aircraft that you did fly, what out of everything you flew, what was your favorite? Oh gosh, <laughs> I I still think the OH fifty eight, the Kiowa, was probably the best, and that's just because it 
it's just so maneuverable. It's so small. You can, you can, you know, we go up to Ripley and you pick a small spot and you're like, okay, that's the, you know, the ground guys are in that field right there in the, in the woods. You picked a tiny little spot and you can land there and get out of it. That's I mean, cool. that's just amazing, mm-hmm. you know, and when you look at the maneuverability <laughs> um, and I would have never thought that right. When, when I first looked at coming to the air force, I was like, Ooh, big airplanes. Right. I mean, in my mind, it was all about the flying of the airplanes, and but now I look at it and think, gosh, this is, it was kind of like, you know, driving a Mini Cooper with yeah. uh, a. <laughs> yeah. it, it was fun, right? It was mm-hmm. fun, and and I really enjoy yeah. flying. I mean, the tanker. I've 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 really enjoyed. Honestly, the the MQ9 I enjoyed much more than I expected to enjoy, and that's really more because of the mission and the connection to. The soldiers and the Marines on the ground or the Navy or whoever it was we were working with, the reason I enjoyed the MQ-9 mission so much was not because of the platform of flying, you know, an RPA. It was more the connection and the the relation to the mission that of what sense. we were doing. Can you talk about just that Reaper just a little bit more for sure. for the, all the kids that are gamers and thinking about, like, well, that's <laughs> what I want to do is, is fly these. So... Because, so you were kind of, like you said before, kind of when you deployed or were flying those, it was just in Des Moines, and you're flying them, mm-hmm. and they're over yes. who knows where, mm-hmm. and you're sitting in a control room. Yes. Like, I guess, what what kind of flight school is that for to learn how to fly that? What, um, you yep. know, the, the amount of hours, you just kind of touching a little bit more of the capabilities, I guess, of the, of the Reaper. Just because it's, yeah. it's a newer thing, you know, people don't mm-hmm. know a whole lot about there it. Are, there's a couple of different options on that. So some of the RPAs that the Air Force has and the Army has as well, do not require you to have um, fixed wing experience, right? So the RPA, the MQ-9 right now, requires you to have at least some fixed wing experience in an actual aircraft. So for a brand new person coming into the Air Force, if you're going to go into the RPA, uh, first you have to be a commissioned officer, so you have to have your four-year degree, and then you have to go through um, really your initial flight training, so that way they know you can land a Cessna, you can land a smaller airplane because they want to know that you have the flight basics of it. Because when when you fly in an MQ-9, while it, yes, it is a, it's a box, right? They really set it up to make it seem as if you're in an airplane, right? The controls are not just like a keyboard. The controls are really like you have an airplane that you're flying and the way you look at things, it's, um, they treat it very much like you're in an airplane and you really have to treat it like you're in an airplane because um, I can think of a number of times when I was physically in a fly zone area perhaps and i found an mq9 at my flight level well mm-hmm. guess who's gonna die right if right. i hit that mq9 it's not the mq9 guy yeah. in des moines iowa or wherever it is yeah it's going to be the person in the real airplane and mm-hmm. so it's really important to make sure that anyone flying that airplane understands the requirements of what it means to be a pilot in the sky too because you are still physically somewhere that you could create danger to others around you Mm -hmm. and so um there there are some other mq9 uav type um or not mq9 but uavs that the air force has um that you don't have to have the same level of flight experience but really an mq9 is the same size as let's call it an a10 right it's as large as an a10 so that's a lot bigger than i would have thought it'd be yeah yeah (laughs) some of them are very small though and some Mm -hmm. of them you know don't look like airplanes at all so Um, those are a little bit different, but uh, at the levels in which you fly at an MQ-9 are the same levels that I'm going to be flying my own airplane somewhere, and I don't 
I want to know that they're going to be at that right altitude. I want to know that they're turning where they're supposed to turn. And just like anybody else who's taking on that responsibility of flying in the the sky. What what kind of missions would you support flying the Reaper? Um, Surveillance? uh, Most of it's surveillance. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, but it's it's always direct contact um, at any time with individuals on the ground. Mm -hmm. So we would always have direct contact with whoever it was on the ground. Um, there was always a controlling agency um, or controlling uh, entity that we would work with, especially, you know, and some of it went back to even with my OH-58 days, right? You're providing visual assistance to whoever's on the ground to say, hey, up here, it looks like you might need to look out for something here, or hey, we see some disturbances here you need to make sure you look at. And so some of it really was just like route clearance that we mm-hmm. would do for the CAS scouts, you know, yeah, in sure. so many ways. It's just a much bigger picture <laughs> than I would ever get in, you know, in the helicopter. But so, so from Des Moines, you talk with JTACs on the ground and yes. communicate everything there. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yep. I, I didn't know Des Moines had that capability, so that's, that's yep. really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the Kiowa, what, what kind of weaponry would was was on that yeah aircraft. so we we had the alpha charlie when we were in the 113th so we didn't have any weapons on that so uh when vietnam ended somewhere in the 80s and 90s we still had the ah1s i don't know if you remember those i got one flight in an ah1 i never got qualified That's in a, it that was the cobra right? the cobra yeah yep. so they would have the weapons on board the alpha charlie of the the kiowa did not have weapons on board okay. it it went back when it went to the Delta model, then they would have the rockets and they had the pod on top for the more specialty equipment. But the Alpha Charlie was really a lift and a mm-hmm. reconnaissance during, I, I'm sure at some point they probably had guns put on the doors, but when oh, we flew sure. them, there were no weapons. They so were, it was just reconnaissance? Just reconnaissance. I did not yep. know that. Yep. Uh, least favorite airframe to fly? I don't know that there's ever been a least favorite. <laughs> Probably, that's a good point. I don't, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like it's always it's all a good, good day when you're flying. Right? Yeah, good, it huh? really is. You know, even if you go out and get in a little Cessna or a Cherokee, it's just, uh, it's just a, if, if you're out flying, and as long as you're where you're supposed to be, it's a good day to fly. You know, if you, <laughs> do you have and, your own private plane in a hangar? I don't. No, no, no. We, um, well, there's a couple of guys uh, that on base that have a have their own private airplanes that they'll rent out to people. But no, we don't have one. My husband's always trying to convince me that we should buy one. But someday. <laughs> uh, the oh yeah, and then the, the hardest and the toughest airframe to fly. What would you say is most difficult? Um, so most difficult, I would say it's not the level of the flying, but the, I think the MQ nine is difficult because um, you have to keep yourself in a mindset that you are in that airplane. Right, wherever that airplane is, you have to keep your mindset that it, that you are in that airplane, and you're carrying real weapons, and that you are talking to real people and soldiers on the ground. And it's difficult because I I saw people very easily. Um, it's easy to forget that, right? Because if you're circling for hours on end, not doing anything, you have to keep your mind sharp and not forget where you are and what you're actually doing. So I think that's a difficult thing because you can't let yourself get lackadaisical in the situation. Um, So I think that's really important. Um, It's not difficult to fly. It's very easy to fly, but 
there are so many things that you could easily screw up and be like, oh, crap, I'm at the wrong altitude, right? Yeah. That's where you start getting at the wrong altitude, you know. Complacency, like, for The sure. complacency. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like the competency and attribute thing. Right. right? And obviously yeah. you don't. Skill set and then the yes. experience. Yeah. And obviously you don't feel it, right? Yeah. In a normal airplane, you're going to feel if you're descending or turning. You don't feel that when you're an MQ-9 because you're sitting in a box. It doesn't turn with you. It doesn't sure. make it feel like you're in there. And so that's that's probably, I would say, the most difficult um, what was your other, the, the I guess, the hardest airplane to fly? Yeah, just probably, you know, what, what school was the hardest um, to, I to think learn an t- For me, T-38s was probably the hardest. And I say that because, um, you know, I never really got into the F-16 training, right? I don't feel like I ever truly got. But the T-38, it was very fast. Um, it was very complex. You had to fly very close to other airplanes at a regular basis. Uh, it was awesome. I mean, I loved it. It was very exciting. But... Um, it was challenging because, you know, especially when you start soloing by yourself and it's you and maybe an instructor in the other airplane and you're like, man, I sure hope I don't hit him because right. we're both going down and <laughs> yeah. I didn't really want to eject. I was going to yeah. say, like, what, what would it take? Like, have you ever gone with, like, I don't know, the Sioux Falls with the aircraft up there and flown with, you know, a senior pilot and just to get some hours in a different aircraft? No, you can't really do that. Okay. So, I'm, I mean, I'm qualified in the tanker, so I fly the tanker and okay. that's where I'm authorized to fly. Um, but I additionally can't go into the backseat of an F-16 anymore because the Air Force has medically told me you can't, can't fly in an ejection seat because sure. you could yep. potentially become, uh, you know, paralyzed mm-hmm. if I did so. So medically, the Air Force would never want me in an ejection yeah, seat airplane. And honestly, I don't want to be either. Yeah. You know? I, I was sure. going to say, could, could, Pretty, an, yeah. could another pilot that didn't have that um, medical you, tape on them you could you could potentially sit in the back seat as um just to, for like an experience flight mm-hmm. but um probably not really for the most i mean we bring people on our airplane you know yeah, we, course, we bring right? people up on ours all the time but for the two-seater or the sing, you know the smaller fighter airplanes that's harder to do so gotcha i've heard yeah. stories of like you know some of the doctors down there that you know, they make friends with pilots and then, yes you know, we'll, <laughs> well, we'll take you, you can for a, always we'll take you for a flight yes next week. docs can always almost always get a flight um, especially if they're flight docs, they can almost always get on the back seat of an F-16. That's very cool. <laughs> how, how many how many pilots uh, of the 185th fly, fly on the civilian side? Oh, gosh. Probably 50%. And I think right now yeah. we're sitting at, um, I would say, across base and in positions that aren't necessarily all regular pilot ones. We probably have... Uh, just going to... I'm going to wag it, I think, 45 to 50. Like... From brand new officers all the way up to somebody in my position who obviously I don't fly regularly anymore. Um, so we probably have at any given time 45 or 50 pilots. And I would say probably close to 50% of them fly somewhere on the outside market wow. if they're not full-time. I mean, when they're not full-time mm-hmm. with us, most of them will be flying for someone like Southwest or UPS or oh, FedEx cool. or you know, and they come here to Sioux City or they live here and then they just commute somewhere to fly uh, for the airline. Sure. Gotcha. I've always thought it was cool, like, you know, being a, being a part-time pilot, you know, like, they could have a, maybe they're a contractor or whatever yeah. it is, and well, what do you do in the guard? And they're like, well, I fly. And yeah. It's like, that's always, yeah. always And we exciting. do have an assortment. Not everybody flies on the yeah. outside, right? Because they're like, we, I, I do it here. I don't want to do it right. a, anymore outside yeah. of that. Sure. Yeah. So. so what's uh what's one of your favorite moments from your career? Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose there's, like, so many that you're like, you know, yeah. but is there a couple that, like, really stand out? Like, you know, this is something that I, if if somebody asked me, this is this is what I would be like, you know, this was probably one of my, one of the coolest yeah. things I've seen or done. Yeah. I, I don't think, 
my the coolest moments really i mean like i had some really cool moments flying but honestly my for for me anyway the coolest moments in my career are really the pieces that are not including with the flying um you know because that's why i stayed right mm-hmm. i didn't stay just to be i mean i could i could be flying for american right now and sure. not dealing with much of what i deal with on a daily basis yeah, the military right. in general but but the what I, why i stay is because i enjoy serving and i enjoy bringing other people up and my my goal is is whatever we accomplish and do as the wing whatever we whether it's a small group or the whole wing you know so when i think about my coolest experiences and it has nothing to do with power or control it has to do with just helping other people see what the benefit is for their service right um i don't you know, you definitely don't stay in the military for the money. You definitely don't stay in mm-hmm. the military. You know, sure, the, the flying is cool, but, um, you know, I stay because of what I appreciate with the, the amazing people I work with, right? I mean, that, that's the cool part of why I really enjoy serving, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, any, uh, as you answered the other question, you know, what kept you here? You said the, the relationships. Any mentors that you can remember? Um, yeah. you know, being, being a young, young pilot moving up that, mm-hmm. you know, that made you, you know, stick out such a long career in the, in the guard. Yeah. You know, I always, I always go back to, um, my, my first mentors that I definitely, you know, as, as a young Lieutenant, obviously I'd had some time as an enlisted member and obviously I pre- appreciated the NCOs around me, but you know, you go through training, you're a brand new Lieutenant, I'm a brand new pilot and I think I know everything you know, and thankfully I had um, some really amazing NCOs. You know, I had a sergeant major and, an, and a first shirt within my organization as a brand new lieutenant that for many years, I said, I feel like they taught me everything I needed to know, right? Because it's not that the captain or the majors that I worked for didn't teach me that, but it's, it's, the, seniors in, it's the senior NCOs that really taught me because they had been around and they weren't trying to... Um, put me down or you know they were trying to build me up to so that way I would hopefully be a better leader that they wanted me to be um so absolutely I mean the sergeant major in the first shirt in my first organization then one that became the first shirt became my sergeant major um when I moved into troop command I mean they are my first mentors there's no doubt in my mind Mm -hmm. you know and and I I do have an uncle that served as a ranger in the army and he gave me my first salute and when he gave gave me my first salute and i gave him a coin he had pulled his ranger tab off of his uniform and he just said regardless of what you do don't forget why you're serving right don't forget why you're serving i like that yeah so i always keep it it's in my it's in my other uniform it's in my flight suit but i always keep it because because it is i mean why do i serve right i you know, there's a number of reasons why mm-hmm. I continue to stay in, right? I'm at 31 years this year. I certainly don't necessarily need to continue to stay Correct. in, but I really feel like every time I continue to commit to an exposition, I, I I have to consider through why am I trying, what am I wanting to accomplish, and why am I staying? And I, I hope that whenever I'm not contributing and continuing to add and continuing to bring value to whatever I'm in, um, that's when I recognize, like, okay, maybe it's time to retire now mm-hmm. and when, go when, fly for American or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> when, when did the mindset shift in your career that, like, I'm going to be here for 31 years and 
Yeah. <laughs> versus just, you know, I'm at eight years. We'll yeah. see what happens. Maybe yeah. I'll reenlist. Maybe I won't. Yeah, that's, um, I think even when I switched from the Army to the Air Force, right, I was at 12 years when I left the Army and came over to the Air Force between six years enlisted, six years as an officer. Um, even at that point, I wasn't even convinced that I was going to stick around for a 20. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll try this out and we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think just over time, the mindset shifted just because of how much I enjoyed it and how much I felt like I was still contributing. And, and some of it is just how much fun I was having, right? I mean, there were so many deployments that we would be going on, you know, for a number of years there. It is fun, right? And I didn't have kids and I didn't have to worry about, you know, most I had to worry about was leaving my dog with somebody. Um, hmm. And so I don't really know when that shifted, but I do know when I got to 20 years, I had to stop and say, okay, <laughs> am I really going it? Because at 21 years, I, I got remarried um, to my, my husband and we decided to start a family. So I really did have to stop and say, am I going to continue? Am I going to continue to serve? If, am I going to make this split now or am I going to, to continue my career? And and obviously, I made the decision to continue, and I'm very happy I did. But. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of compromises, what would you say some of the big life compromises have been to have the have the Guard be such a big part of your career? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think I felt like it was a compromise at the time, but okay. I'm sure making the delayed decision to not have kids with my first husband, to be single for so many years, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, there's probably some compromise and you know, I, I'm sure at the time I didn't think, oh, I'm compromising. I just thought I'm, doing, life. I'm doing my life, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think there's probably compromise with everything I've done, and those are decisions I've made, and I, I don't see them as compromises anymore. I see them as these were the decisions I made, and I think they've been good decisions. Just part of the journey. <laughs> yeah, well, what about right. your civilian career? How, is, how has the Guard worked with your civilian jobs? And I, I guess yeah. what, what have you done on the civilian side? Yeah, that's what's interesting. I Every time I try to go to the civilian market, I keep, feel like I keep on getting pulled back in full-time <laughs> to the military. Okay. Um, so when I first went through pilot training, um, you know, I so my undergrad degree was in sociology, right? I thought I was going to go get a master's in social work. Uh, there was one period of time I thought I was, I, you know, was not going to spend my life being in the military. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I didn't do that for very long because I just made the decision that, um, I really enjoyed working full-time for the military better. Uh, and then I went back and I got my master's degree in public policy and public administration. And I thought, I'm going to work for city. I'm going to go out and work. Um, and honestly, I never I never did, right? I got the, got sure. the degree. And um, I've just really enjoyed every job that I've, whether – whether it's been at the counter drug, because that was also military, right? That was a military organization that I worked for, mm-hmm. um, you know, or deploying or, you know, I've, I've always done full-time military for the most part. Um, even if I've thought, I'm going to go try the civilian side, I just always get pulled back in and I'm like, well, I'll take this opportunity instead. And so now here I am at 31 years, you know, I, I mean, I could retire sure. if I chose to, um, but I still like it. Yeah, the 31, how many count as full-time or AGR years? Um, so I was a technician for many years. I've got about 19 years of technician. And then because of all my deployments and different AGR times, um, I have about a year and a half left to get to my 20 AGR. Perfect. So, uh, yep. So right now, now I am kind of in, right? Now I'm a year and <laughs> yeah, a half yeah. away from an AGR yeah. retirement. Yeah, you, you so. might as well keep going, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for continuing to go, especially if you don't have to. And yeah. That's definitely yeah. 
pushing through. Um, what about like, so what do you see? What do you think like right now for, you know, I'm sure we see it on the fire. We see it on the uh, fire service, EMS service, police, everything that uh, retention and recruiting efforts and stuff. So what kind of problems are you seeing or do you see that on whether it's, you know, the Army side, uh, the Air Guard side, the big Air Force, the military in general and stuff. Mm-hmm. But what do you see is, is maybe the biggest problem there? And, and do, you, do you have a do you, does the 185th have a hard time getting uh, people and and retaining people now? I mean, what kind of struggles are you guys seeing? Because I, I know what we're seeing on yeah. on, on our end. So. Yeah. And I, I think we're probably seeing much of what you guys see on your end um, because we are a product of our society. Right. We are a product of the same group of people that you recruit to the the police department recruits to um you know we've we've still seen a lot of success um if we we have a detachment in fort dodge which is really struggling i would say on the enlistment side but here in sioux city our numbers we're actually at almost 105 percent for the wing wow so so we are we are we've been very successful um the problem really comes to the retention, though, right? How long are they, they staying? Um, and quite a few years ago, the military switched so that you could move it to a different buy-in system so you don't have to stay for 20 years to get a retirement. What they opted to change to is the, I don't even... The blended retirement. Blended retirement, system. right. And so sometimes people will leave and just say, well, I, I came in, I got my college paid for. And honestly, I look at that and I say thank you so much because... Mm-hmm. If, if you're not in for 20 years or 30 years, I will never hold that against somebody, right? But but I do love it when they do decide to stay because everybody decides to stay at each point in their career for different things. Um, but we absolutely, you know, I do, I've definitely seen an increase in the retention departures, mm-hmm. right? For people that are at six years or 12 years, especially now that if they're at 12 years and they're under the blended retirement system and maybe they're irritated with their supervisor or maybe they're just tired, right? Mm-hmm. They're just tired because they have a job on the outside and they have this expectation on drill weekend. And I know some people are just tired and so they choose to leave because they don't need to stay till 20 years. They can have this blended system and they can invest it somewhere else so that they haven't lost whatever sure. it is that they've earned. And um, But I do think Society has changed a bit that, you know, it's not that I didn't ever think I would stay in the military for so long, but I certainly, I didn't have the same perspective as what I believe some of the younger generation have of, hey, I just don't like this. I'm going to move to something else now, Mm -hmm. right? There's been plenty of times I have not liked my career, right? There's (laughs) been plenty of times I was like, oh, man, I think I'm done, right? I I think I'm going to go try something else. But you don't make that rash decision quickly. Mm -hmm. I do find there are some of this and i don't even know if it's a generational thing but that are just like oh, i don't like this anymore i'm gonna go try something else i, I think it i is think a it is a generational yeah. thing yeah. i think because so. i'm you know having having kids that are are older one going off to college and stuff and that it kind of is his, his mindset but it's mm-hmm. it's all of his friends it's any of them yeah. that we talk to and i think you know we need to maybe change our mindset but there is not it doesn't seem like there isn't that that grind like even though i hate yeah. my job right now but to think, mm-hmm. well, if I get through this, maybe it'll, it'll be better right. in, a, in a little bit. Yeah. There is, yeah. there's it's, like, it's they get, like they get told eh. that they shouldn't settle or yeah, right. it should never be f- not go your way. You, yeah. You're in control of your own destiny. Well, yeah. and you can pound you that can into them help all you yourself, want. Set yourself up in the best <laughs> yeah. you can, but yeah. life is yeah. going to throw you. Yep, and it's all of they're going to. So. I keep telling them, I'm like, the, I said, the, I keep telling them that the real world is going to smack you in the face yeah. so hard, and you won't even. And then someday you might be like. 
Oh, yeah, I guess my dad was right about yeah. something. You know, we were, exactly. we were all raised on embrace the suck. Yeah, because yeah. that's part that's making. And you're better. just going to grind, gonna struggle yep. in there. It's going to you're going to come gonna out build on the character. Other end going, it's going to make you stronger. That yes. wasn't great, but at least I went yes. through it, and now I know if I get thrown that again, I know how to navigate that. Yep. But I see mm-hmm. it, like you were saying, mm-hmm. I get met with some resistance or some. Oh no, I'm not going to do this anymore because yeah. it's not fun or it's not. Yeah. That's yeah. how I take it. Mm-hmm. And yep. kind of and, it, and it's all of it's all of them. Older it's just, soul it's, it's, sense, it just seems like that. That is what the generation is. coming up yeah. is. You know, and I, I've definitely whole. had the conversation. You know, I mean, you always hear it from younger folks. I don't mean to say it like that, but you know, oh, you've you've just you've had all of every opportunity you could have, right? Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> what you do is make sure that you're ready for whatever opportunity comes along. And yeah, if, yeah. if you're ready for that opportunity, if you're ready for that promotion then you would be considered. But if you're not even ready for it, you won't be considered. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's what I always tell people. I'm like, don't assume this next promotion is going to be here. Yeah. But what you should also not assume is that it's going to come to you if you're not prepared for it. Right? Mm-hmm. If you haven't done what you need to do to be prepared for it, then you're right. You're not going to get that opportunity for mm-hmm. that promotion. Right? I like that. Yeah. So, oh, and yeah. sometimes you might not get the promotion. Right. Right? I mean, yep. I've been told plenty of times, right. no. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> when I got in the card, I was six and get out that was my mentality from mm-hmm. as soon as i got to my first day of basic training i was like i'm getting out of this as soon as i can yes and then when i got to my unit they told me we're gonna get you to your blc get your school get this I'm, like, I'm not getting promoted because i'm six and done mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden i'm re-enlisting i like yes. it i make some friends and i'm like yeah. I, so i just did blc at like year six yeah and i could have had that done year three if i wanted to when right. i was in college and but I, you're doing I, it your way but i'm yeah i figured <laughs> it out and that's uh, yeah. um just because as a young adult, 18 to 24 is such a life-changing, mm-hmm. and that's going to determine so much about your life mm-hmm. that in the military especially, and that's going to be like that prime recruiting and retention area, yeah. is just how can we how can we help you and make it, you know, and, and look mm-hmm. into your future. I think like that's like the, the soul of retention is what can we do for you yeah. because you may not even know it, like it used, what you need. But mm-hmm. I think it used to speak for itself too because you have individuals like yourself or like, Phil and some members that have been on for so long and they don't leave, you know, they've had ups and downs in their career, but look at all these people that have stayed and now we're seeing faster turnover rates. It's like that never used to happen. And these people went through same things or similar, not Mm -hmm. same, but the similar Mm -hmm. things you're going through. Why can't you just look at that and just see the end Mm -hmm. goal? Not like looking past right now. Yep. I don't think a lot of people look past what's right in front of them. They need to look further out. Yep. Luckily, I, hope, I was raised to do that. Right. And, I was saying, and you hope that, that, that some of this next generation, I hope that they will begin to see that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I do think you're right. You know, they're going to go into this the community and they might say, oh, wait, why am I getting smacked just as much as, you know, like this is just as much of a struggle mm-hmm. as maybe I met in the military. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you, you hope. At, mm-hmm. I think, and those are just sometimes you just learn them with life, right? Yeah. And it depends on how you were raised. I mean, my, sure. my parents didn't let me just quit certain things, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you yep. know? Like, if you sign up for something, you're going to do you're it for the whole season, it. at least, even yep. if you don't like basketball yeah. anymore or yeah. whatever yeah. it is, get you know? It and then, okay, then we'll talk about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. 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 What's the uh, best piece of advice that you could give for offered a new airman as people coming into the, into the military just starting out? Yeah. I honestly, I, I think it still always goes back to that piece of not every day is going to be perfect, right? And and we're not anything special than anything else. In the, we are we are absolutely a product of our society, right? And some days might be bad. Some days you might have a complaint about your supervisor. Some days 
you might be like, man, I really thought that guy walked on water, but he just pissed me off. That is life, right? <laughs> That's just what happens everywhere we go. And so when airmen get really upset and they're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to quit now. You know, usually my advice is just give yourself some time, right? Mm -hmm. Life isn't perfect, right? Were your parents perfect? Were you perfect? People make mistakes, right? And and so how do we work through that? And how do we not quit right away? And 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 then hopefully, you know, we get to that six-year mark and maybe they do want to stay mm -hmm. because then they do see those opportunities for promotion and they see those opportunities for hey, I can be that better leader for that, for that young airman or however that works for them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they might just say, no, I'm done with this, whether it's because they're irritated. But, um, you know, the quick reaction is usually what I try to help alleviate, I guess. Sure. You know, it's not going to happen right away. <laughs> any any leadership philosophies you've carried through your career that, you know, you would say is, your, is kind of your brand as a leader and a commander? Um... <clears throat> I, I like to believe that I've carried this always, and I'm sure I've failed it sometimes, but um, I, I like to believe that I listen more than I talk. Um, and I know that there are times that I don't, right? And I know that there are times that it's not appropriate that I listen mm -hmm. and I need to talk. <laughs> but I, I do believe in every situation I can think of, especially that has been a struggle, um, if you just listen to what they're trying to say, if you listen to the situation and try to assess that before making a decision, because um, it's really easy, right? It's really easy for me to talk. <laughs> and it's really easy for me to tell somebody, shut up, I don't want to hear this anymore, right? But that's not going to get me anywhere, mm -hmm. right? That's not going to help build up my leaders behind me because in two or three or however, I'm at the mercy of the tag, right? I am in command at the mercy of the tag. If he came down tomorrow and said, hey, I need you to move on somewhere else, or hey, you're done with this command, I'm done, you know, then I'm done, right? Mm -hmm. So so all I can do right now is continue to try to improve and help my leaders below me, whether it's an airman, whether it's an E5, whether it's an E8, whether it's a lieutenant or a major, that they are ready to step into those next positions because each one of us might potentially move on at any time. And so that's the perspective I feel like I've always tried to have is the moment I go into a position, I'm trying to figure out how am I building these this team into something that when I leave, they are going to be in, they're going to be just fine, mm -hmm. right? Everybody's replaceable, you know. So you're, you're training your replacement. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's sure. something we talk about here a lot. Is stuff is is that yeah. I had a captain that just Shout retired. Out captain that, Anderson. Yep, that yeah. told me that grounded. You know, was one of the first people to say that. That's what about the most important thing an officer or leader can do is train your replacement. Yeah. So that you know you, you are conditioning and getting those guys yeah. blow you ready. So. Um, I just, yeah. I got, you got one more question. I got one, I got, just because I'll you, never have an opportunity <laughs> to ask somebody because of the unique position that she's in, um, as far as the aircraft and everything you've flown. So if we were going to ask between 1986's Iron Eagle, okay, so flying some F-16s <laughs> and 1990's Firebirds with Nicolas Cage as the Apache, <laughs> yes. which movies like, like if you were like, that's more realistic or like it's all it's all hollywood it's all crap you've seen both i have seen both yeah. yes okay. of course i've yeah, seen both yep. and then there's like, always top gun you didn't right. even ask me well about top gun. That, but that's, well, that's, that's navy itself, that, that's navy <laughs> stuff yeah, i'll navy stick it with air force and army yeah, so there it yep. um i i think there's a lot of hollywood stuff yeah. in both of them but um you know i did not 
watch Firebirds until I was at Fort Rucker going through Apache training. Yeah. I've never seen never that seen movie. Never seen it before. Yep. And I was like, holy crap. <coughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> do you have uh, to do, like, if you got to the point, do you have to do the bag then and do all that? You the, do. Do you? Yes. That's a real yes. thing. That is a real thing. Wow. That is a very real thing. So yeah. I think there's always aspects of realistic life, but then. If you guys haven't seen Firebirds. No, I'm like just Tommy glad we Lee brought Jones up. Stuff. I, Nicholas Cage for Baker. I know that's that's right. it was, right. that was that was a double. That <laughs> was I had Nicholas to. Cage. Yep, yeah. I had to hit. Yep, I yeah. rage with Cage on. This I was like, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting here. I'm going, oh, wait a minute. We can, I can, we can ask because she's flown both aircraft. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, well, this is a unique opportunity. We'll never yeah. get again. Yeah, so. Well, I would just say I love all movies like that, yeah. though. I really do. What's your favorite? What's your favorite like military themed movie? I was going to ask one. everyone. Yeah. Were you? Yeah. Okay. That's how I was hoping. I was hoping everyone had one. So. I mean, when I think about my favorite like series, it's still Mash. Yeah, right? okay, I, okay. I still Fantastic. love Mash. Yep. And I'm amazed at how many people too. don't love Mash. I'm oh. like, there's just so many good good things about Mash. Sure. Yes. I, I mean, and maybe it's just because I grew up watching. Do you it. like? Did you like the series better or the movie? The series. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely the series. And Radar, the guy who played Radar, Radar is the only from, guy that made the transition. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And from Iowa. And from Iowa. Yeah. From Iowa. Too. Yes. Yeah. Um. It's you know, just I'm a not quick witty show. Yeah, it yeah, was, it was yeah. Great. But movie, I, I don't know. I still think I, I love Red Dawn, and I know that's not even an Air The original one. Yeah. 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 Oh come on! Don't Patrick even. Swayze. Yes. Yeah, not the remake. Yeah, yeah Patrick. <laughs> we Swayze. don't even recognize the new one. Charlie Sheen. <laughs> well, see, there's a lot of guys just, in that. There was a lot yeah, of people in the movie. Yeah, yeah Red Dawn. So, wow. But not a yeah, not yeah. really an Air Force. No, but still an army movie. Yeah, if you had but, to pick military. Yeah, I don't know. Love that. But I do love. I love a lot of military movies. It's hard to narrow down. Bill, what about you? Yeah, again, uh, well, I mean, if I got, if I had to, like, again, if, if I uh, Mash was my parents watch Mash, so we watch watch mm-hmm. Mash all the time. It's fantastic. If I had to pick a series, though, I got I got to go to like Band of Brothers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, come on. Yeah. Um, so every good. time it's on and stuff. But it, you know, if I, I had know. to pick like a movie, like you know, Team America. World <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> Team America. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I yeah, like I, I, any of the military themed ones. I, I, I like the ones that are more like when we go back and people that were in the military or people that were consultants on it and review it and say, you know, that was that was, yeah. uh, you know, 13 hours I thought was fantastic. And when you read the oh, stuff yeah. on that, you know, 13 modern, hours, for but, sure. yeah, you know, watching yeah. the movie like and they're like, no, this is as real. It's kind of mm-hmm. as real as it gets. Those are the military ones that I like yeah. more mm-hmm. so than the, the, the blowout Hollywood. But yeah, the new yeah. Top yeah. Gun was great just to go and watch. But I, I would say Band of Brothers, if that's on, that I watch it no yeah. matter what. Can't turn you know? it off no. if it's on. No. It's like, no. oh, I guess I'm watching Band <clears throat> yeah. of Brothers for the next eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was going to be mine, too, is Band of Brothers. Don't talk yeah. to me until tomorrow. For, uh, <laughs> yeah. for Variety, I'll say Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Yeah. I've watched one. that since Great I was – I watched that way too young, but I've loved <laughs> that movie yeah. for yeah. Will for Eternity. Seeing that in the theaters was like the intensity of that beach landing scene and watch and looking around – and seeing like the people's faces, like nobody else. Like, I just mm-hmm. took a second just to like look around, and everybody's like jaws were just yeah. dropped yeah. and just yeah. fixated. So you on probably that didn't get to see it in the theater. No, so I, did I did not. I had to wait till that it came was, out it on really VHS. It really was very intense. And my grandparents true. talked about people walking out of that, like vets walking out of that movie because it was so it was yeah. realistic. So realistic. Yeah. 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 And yeah, it was intense. For my yeah. my series though, I go to Hogan's Heroes. 
because my Logan's grandpa Heroes. and dad watched that and then my dad still watches that <laughs> so uh so. i have to admit it's on every night we always go to me tv my kids watch it yeah. seriously yes oh, so they good. love hogan's heroes yep. and we're oh, like okay you went to like that on. kind of stuff like f troop on nick at uh nick oh. at night was f troop was that you ever watch oh. f troop f troop yep. was another it was yeah it was kind of a corny thing it was funny though civil yeah. war i don't know if i've seen f troop yeah, oh. it's a, it's an old. It was on at like Nick oh. Nick and yeah. I always had it on. So. I love the movie Glory, by the way. Oh, if you want to go back, Matthew Broderick. Oh my yeah. god, that I saw that when we were in like sixth grade. We I had to our, watch it. In yeah, like we watched it. Too. It was, oh, <laughs> yeah, it was probably. like such yeah. a good movie. Yeah, yep. a, a very actually really good cast and yeah. uh, and score. My uh, I can remember my mom got this <laughs> the score the CD. We listened to her in her probe SE, had a souped up sound system in there, and just really? blast it. Like, oh man, the, the score <laughs> for it's fantastic. Glory yeah. was an excellent movie. Um, our producer, he threw in since Ben uh, took his with Saving Private Ryan, he's, yeah. uh, he also added a few good men. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. That's a great one. Nice. Yeah. I would agree. Really good. A little bit different with the JAG instead yeah. of, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, instead of the yeah. more of the fighting, the, mm-hmm. the other side of. of uh, military stuff and to know that you know military has all all those different positions mm-hmm. so whether it's the band or right. you know a counter drug task force thing or or flying reapers or yeah, or being a lawyer rescue. in the army you yeah. know, or a cook or fire you know fire oh. rescue the military has all these different positions stuff that you can do so yeah one more honorable mention or, or honorable mention is uh the great escape steve mcqueen you talk, <laughs> about, you talk about hogan's okay. heroes yeah 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 I That's like what that. made me think of that. So okay. that was a good movie. That's a good one. Great one. But, uh, ma'am, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, any Anything you'd like to share with your family? Um, these podcasts, they know they kind of get, they're going to get archived, and I guess as long as the internet lives on, maybe this will live on. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, anything you want to message to your, your kids, grandkids, one day, family members? Uh, to them oh that's that's big that's yeah. a big that's one big. Like a time <laughs> <capsule. there. laughs> yep. my kids are young right now man yeah, yeah. <laughs> um no it, first thank you so much for inviting me down here thank you for, thank you for coming on time this is being awesome here, yeah. yeah yeah um i i really just appreciate it you know when i and i think about our role in sioux city when i think about our role in the air force and um I'm just, I'm honored to be here and to be part of this organization. And I'm honored to even, every time I have an opportunity to meet with the city or the community, I love talking about my unit as well, right? It's not my unit, it's our unit, Mm -hmm. right? This is part of Sioux City. Mm -hmm. The CAV and and the 185th is part of who Sioux City is. Um, You know, and so when I think about, like, my kids, my my hope is they're going to pick up something from me so that, you know, whether they choose to serve as a police officer or a fire department or whether they choose to go be a doctor, you know, I don't really care. I just, my, my hope is, is that they pick up the appreciation, right? Um, you know, once upon a time, I, you know, when I was in high school, I used to think we got to, I've got to go serve somewhere, right? And then it became really beneficial when I started looking into how am I going to pay for my college, you know, whether it was going to be through the Peace Corps, through the military, through some sort of religious program. I mean, I just, I I think it's important to serve, right? I look at what each of you do as well. Sure, it pays the bills, mm-hmm. but you also serve. You serve this community. And so whatever it is that my kids choose to do someday, whatever it is that each of my airmen within the wing choose to do, the fact that they've chosen to serve, even if, whether it's for six years, whether it's for 12, for 20 or 30, they're there and they're serving, mm-hmm. right? If you had opted to get out at six years, I'd still say thank you so much for your time, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I look at my father's time. Um, you know, he spent four years on active duty uh, in the Air Force during Vietnam. And he 
spent so many years ashamed because he didn't stay longer because he was just he was fed up he was done wow. right mm-hmm. um and i just i i look at any person i speak with they served right they they served their time whether it was whatever role that happens to be i mean we all have a requirement to help make this community better and so i just i hope that that gets passed across to my kids and to any airman that at least works under, underneath me so fantastic man well thank you so much today anybody else got anything no no awesome no that's well yeah once thanks, again guys. thank you for taking the time Absolutely. uh have a wonderful rest of your day yeah ryan go ahead and drop tones thanks guys Nice day today. You know, I talk about flying. I think I might try it. Put my helmet on for safety. I think it might get a little windy up there too. Time for a superhero takeoff. Ah. Hey, it looks like uh, looks like Sioux City rush hour is going on right now. Oh. Oh man, that water treatment plant, I'll tell you what. Hey, there's a monument there, look at that, giant pencil. That's pretty neat. I wonder what else I can see. You know, I wonder if I can get a little bit of speed. Crank this up. Superman pose. Hey, downtown. Across the viaduct. Look at all this stuff. Man, this city looks pretty neat from the sky. Yeah. Maybe take a, oh, you know what? Let's try some maneuvers. This is, this is kind of fun. Maybe, uh, maybe try a roll. Oh, 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 I'm getting too old for that. All right, coming through downtown. Let's see, hey, oh, yeah. All right, maybe, uh, tell you what, I think I'm gonna swing by my station. Let's see what that looks like from here. Let's go that way. Station eight, this is Ghost Rider. It's going to fly by. That's a negative, Ghost Rider. Pattern is full. Sorry, Goose. It's time to buzz the tower. 